Welcome back, guys. Alex Titan here with Almost Infamous. In this conversation, had the opportunity to speak to a really fascinating guy, former UFC flyweight fighter, big wave surfer, and member of the infamous beachside gang, the Bra Boys, Richie Vasvasulik. Super interesting dude. We got into all the nitty-gritty details about his life. Um... Lots of really awesome stories, uh, a great insight into uh, his life within the Bra Boys and also juggling a career as one of the world's best big wave surfers and a really promising flyweight fighter who appeared uh, four or five times for the UFC. Hope you guys enjoy it. Feel free to drop us a rate on the iTunes store. Send me a message if uh, there's anything that you want to hear or any guests that you want to hear from. Anything that you like or don't like, happy to hear suggestions, comments, queries, or otherwise. Let's get stuck into it, guys. Peace. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having us. No, I'm good. Thanks for coming on. Um... We're going to get stuck straight into it. Um, tell us about your early days in Maruba and how you linked up with the Aberdeen boys. Early days in Maruba, you know, I um, look, so lucky to grow up in such a, uh, such a great area. Uh, I grew up actually like Little Bay, which is just you know, five minutes south of Maruba, but I was just surf mad as a kid. All I wanted to do was be down the beach and be in and amongst the waves. I did nippers down at Maruba. Um, and I'd always, you know, punish my mum to take me surfing all the time. My uncle and my cousins, who you know the same age as me, um, uh, Daniel, my cousin, and, and Uncle Michael, they were both mad surfers as well up at Avalon, the Northern Beaches. So they, um, you know, really got me into surfing, and yeah, I was just really hooked. So whenever we at home, I was like, Mum, take me surfing, take me surfing, and um, she was a little, she was okay with me on the bodyboard. You know, the first one I was like eight or nine. And then uh, I'd only surf my fiberglass board up at Avalon with my uncle, where she felt it was a bit safer. Um, and then I think she finally got fed up of me asking to take my fiberglass board out at Maroubra. And she was looking for a way, I guess not to offload me, but just to feel like I was a bit safer down there, you know? So when I was about 10 years old, um, she got talking to the guys down, there was a, uh, just a milk bar down the beach called Aurora Milk Bar, uh, run by one of the local boys. Um, and yeah, Sean, the owner of the bar, just said, look, get him into board riders. You know, all the boys, uh, local servers are in board riders. You get him into it, you know, and he'll know everyone and they'll look after him and they can take him surfing and, you know, make sure he's safe when he's down here. And that's basically how I was introduced to Maru Beach and got involved in the board riders. Met the Aberdeen brothers and, uh, you know, they were you know, definitely some of the best, best big wave servers in Australia at the time. Kobe obviously went on to be, you know, one of the best big wave servers in the world. and. I was pretty stoked to you know, show a similar interest in doing, wanting to do what they were doing, and uh, they took me under their wing. And yeah, it was uh, it was it was really an, an awesome you know, uh, youth, I guess. Yeah. So even when you very first met them, they were already crushing big waves. Yeah, they were like it was, and it wasn't just the Aberdeen brothers. You know, it was like Wayne Cleveland, you know, Jack Kingsley, all these guys down the beach. who were just you know they were just tradesmen from the beach, doing it. But they, you know, it was always this mentality of when the waves were big you know you got out there and yeah I, I guess it was that you know I guess it was pretty macho and like a lot of bravado and stuff but as a young fella looking up to that you know, to know that okay when the waves were big you, you got your board and you paddled out and if you didn't you got heckled you know like you, you couldn't show your face around the beach for four weeks afterwards if you didn't paddle out when the waves were big and um yeah, and it, was, it, it wasn't only about big, surf, big wave surfing, it was about everything in life almost, you know what I mean? You, know, you party hard, you drink hard, whatever it is, you know, if there's a fight, you don't run away. So it's that whole mentality about almost you know, like go hard, go, go home attitude, but definitely in big wave surfing, which is what I was drawn to, I, I had, you know, 
a dozen idols down at Maroo Beach that um, really you know, stood out, stood up when the waves got big and, and, and um, yeah, that's, that's definitely what guided my passion as well. I was just like, you know, that's what I, that's what I want to do. And you know, initially I was terrified when the waves got big, but, you know, you sort of try and try, you know, come in sort of weeping a few times, you know what I mean? But, um, you know, eventually, you know, gained the confidence and with their encouragement and, you know, like, they, like I said, they took me under their wing, took me to a few big, big wave surf spots, you know, when the waves got big, um, you know, it just developed into, you know, an absolute... Know, adrenaline hit and I was just addicted to it and you know I loved it that's kind of leads perfectly into my next question because you become known as this dude who tackles like really gnarly waves Hawaii Tahiti um, Shipstone Bluff um, ours is a regular spot of yours I mean you guys basically discovered that right yeah um, yeah it was I think it was like I guess early 2000s so late uh, 1990s there was just definitely a buzz around this, you know, new kind of slab slab surfing. They were calling it, just chasing heavy reefs around. I was, and all these reefs were really like were found by bodyboarders actually, because they, they were really more suited to body bodyboarding, just the way they hit the reef and jacked up so fast. Yeah, you know, really, Kobe was leading the way in, in chasing those kind of waves around Australia, around the world. Um, and like I said, with him and Mark Matthews lead, leading the way, and luckily I could I could tag along with a few of my mates, like you know, James Rooster Adams and Evan Forks and. Um, it, it was just you know the best time ever to just go on these adventures to places you've never been. You know, where it'd be like you know the tip of you know southwestern Australia or Tasmania or you know Fiji, Tahiti to chase these waves with your best mates. It was uh, yeah, it was unbelievable. So how how long is it between graduating from a bodyboard to a fiberglass board to tackling monsters? Yeah, I guess it was. Um, I don't know, to a monster for me, you know, when I, when I was just graduating off my bodyboard to yeah, a yeah. Like, well, it wasn't big at all, you know, but it was um, around sort of eight or nine, my mum started letting me bring my fiberglass board back from Avalon on the northern beaches to Maroubra and she would sit on the beach and, you know, watch me try and paddle out the back and get washed back to shore, or, you know, <laughs> for, for, um, you know, for a couple of years and then, oh yeah, she did she got me down to board riders and, and that's where I met all the boys and they were like, yeah, don't want the waves get big, you know, we'll, we'll take you out. And, and that's, that's, all, that's what it was, you know, one of the waves get big. I didn't know how to get out the back. They showed me, you know, how to, what rock to jump off, you know, off the point or how to use this rip to get out the back. And um, it really just made me feel a lot more comfortable out there. Um, you know, that's where that, that, that passion started to grow. And I could see these idols of mine, you know, who were just charging these big waves. And at the beach, it might have only been just, just overhead high. But for me, you know, these, these things were monsters. So um, I just, yeah, so pretty much from the get-go, I was just starting to find my feet on the surfboard. I, I just still wanted to try and... Bigger and bigger. waves, yeah. And coming many a time, you know, <laughs> with my towel between my legs. But that, and that, I remember, it was, I think the first year I joined Board Riders, I was, I was nine or ten, and it was my very first heat. And the waves were probably only four foot at Maroo Beach, but like I said, to me, that was just like monstrous. My very first heat, I paddled out, and I didn't even make it out the back. You know, I get kept, kept getting washed back to shore, and I was like, hold like choking on tears and sobbing and run back up the rocks, jump back off. I just get washed back in my white water, and I'll just get back up the shore. <laughs> like for like you know 25 minutes, I just try to get the back, and I, I didn't even get a wave. But the boys came in, and like to my surprise, I just thought I was going to get heckled, or I was just so embarrassed. They would just slap him in the back, got me up in the shoulders, and you know, I was just because the other guys in my heat were like you know 14, 15, so I was the youngest by far, and they were just so stoked at you know the effort of trying to get the back and not stopping. Like, so I kind of realised, yeah, right, I, I can, you know, I can if I stick at it, uh, I, and you know, the boys encouraged it, just meant the world to me. So I was like, all right, 
I might not got out of the back, but yeah, you know, I will eventually. And yeah. <laughs> then, yeah, it was a, it was a bit of a slow burn, but you get there, and then uh, like like anything, you know, like like fighting, where it's just you keep trying to get that confidence. You know what I mean? You learn from mistakes, and then uh, you know I was fortunate in, in both realms to have great great idols, great guidance, and um, you know, eventually you sort of start to find, find work it out and, and find that confidence you need. Yeah. So in those early days, 9, 10, 11, you've just, you've been in board riders for a couple of years. Was Broadways as a group an established thing? Was it like a, was it just a group of mates or was there a point at time where they go, we want to be this? We, you came up with a name and the, the crew kind of formed as a, as an entity beyond just a couple of mates hanging out. Yeah, that happened, you know, kind of long before I joined board riders and, um, you know, that kind of brotherhood, camaraderie, you know, community was out again, like, even you know, long before that, uh, had you know, so many different names over the generations, you know, and then around the 1990s, early 1990s, that, that whole sort of, I guess, gang mentality from, you know, the States, you know, it was really like, like gangster rap and all that gang mentality, so it was really took off in Australia and there was gangs popping up over, you know, Western Sydney around, you know, close to Maroon and whatnot started filtering down the beach and you now there was a bit of trouble being caused and the boys always been proud of where they're from and where they live. So I said, well, you know, fuck these cunts coming down here and saying they're from, you know, where he's, you know, at... Riff you know, boys we, or... Yeah, coming here and causing trouble. Like, if, you know, we're just banding together and if they do cause trouble, at least we, we can band together and we can you know, try and protect our little, our little home and be proud of where we're from. And, and that's where the, one of the boys, Jack King, said, well, fuck it, we'll call ourselves the Bra Boys, you know? Anyone who's keen to fucking put their hand up and say they're, they're from Maroubra, I'm going to get tatted on me, you know, who else wants one? And then just spread a lot of wildfire, you know? So, you know well, I think because of that that feeling of, like, the places... Get, oh, they were, you know, you're, you're proud of the area, you want to stand up for it. Yeah. Sick of, like, groups of guys coming down, claiming they're from elsewhere and they'll beat you up or whatever. Yeah. So, um, you know, well, let's all band together and, like... You know, we're not going outside of Maroubra looking for trouble, but, like, if, if groups of guys come down here... Cause there's a, like a, at the Seals Club, there's a nightclub there on the beach and stuff. So it was kind of a bit of a hub for like, you know, trouble and people coming in yeah. from, you know, other suburbs. Um, and that's basically how eventually, you know, but before that it was like the boys had, the boys from Rupert had names, you know, since the 1940s and the you know, 1950s. So like they do at any other beach, you know, the Bronny boys and the Bono boys, you know, it stretches up all around the coast of Australia, you know. Yeah. There's that tribalism that, you know, you're proud of your little beach where you've grown up. Um, and just the way the coast is structured, you know, we've got like little nooks and crannies, you've got cliffs everywhere, then little nook and crannies, the beach, and that's where a little, you know, community is built. Um, yeah. And that's just how it is. And you've always got a little rivalry with the community, you know, over the headland. Um, yeah, it's just, it's just, I think, and it's not only coastal, it's like people are proud of where they're from all yeah, over the yeah. world. And that, that's all it was. And that's, and I grew up in Janjuk, so I like, well, I learned to yeah. surf on Janjuk Back Beach and, uh, they like I didn't know at the time that they were a crew, but there was always a group of dudes that just surfed Janjuk Back Beach, yeah. and they'd have beef with the guys down at Boobs, and then yeah. they'd have beef with the guys at Bells, and like they would just <laughs> same shit. It would go <laughs> around the coast. Uh, they didn't matter where you go in the world, you know, that that's the case. But I guess where it happened to me was a little bit more extreme. Why did Why did you guys become the notorious more so than other crews? Yeah, I, I don't. No, but I, there was a bit of media attention, you know, around early 2000s. And I guess just for the fact that, you know, we were tattooed on ourselves and we were very proud of it and, and took that extra step, I guess, rather than other places, you know. Um, and there was that criminal aspect, you know, a lot of the boys got in trouble and went to jail and got, you know, in the media for those kind of things. And then... Uh, it snowballs. Just snowballs, yeah, that media attention, you know, came and you started to get that kind of... Um, 
I yeah. guess reputation then. I guess all the guys want to live up that reputation and it definitely, like, I, I was guilty of that when I was you know, in my early 20s and late teens of just thinking that I had to live up this reputation of growing up in Maroubra and behaved in ways I look back and wish I, you know, I wish I had it, but it was just, I guess, uh, how it was. And yeah, it just, it just definitely when the documentary came out, that's when uh, you know, the most notoriety came about. And, and just, I guess, too, because you had, you know, really a lot of successful people come from you know, the area, you know, with a bra boy tattoo on them. And it created, I guess, a bit of interest in um, the media or the... Latched onto know, it. Yeah, know more about you know, what it was all about. And, um, yeah, so it, it got pretty wild, or definitely around the documentary time. Yeah. Just about the attention. And I think a lot of young guys, too, probably do want to hang around the beach for the wrong reasons or not really understanding what or why, you know. Yeah. You've got to be misconstrued there, but... Definitely times are good now and the place is doing really well. Um, it's always had a pretty colourful history. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let me preface this by saying from what I can gather of the events, you heavily responsible for the de-escalation of this situation. Um, as someone in the midst of that, you were about 21 when the Cronulla riots happened, right? Um, how yes. much do you remember about that? Oh yeah, that was wild, yeah. Um, I remember like... Um, the memory from that time especially was I was working, I was playing carpeting, I got my trade as a car player, and I was going to the tip and I'm here on the radio, and, you know, all this hype about what's gonna happen at Cronulla, you know, it's kinda of spreading like wildfire, what's gonna happen and then and then you know, I was here on the radio that oh the Bravos are getting involved and they're all coming down showing support and I was just like, Oh, you know, oh wow, this is crazy, I haven't heard anything about it, you know, and none of the boys have been talking about it, you know, like what's going on in Cronulla is going on in Cronulla and yeah. That's, you know... That's, that's eight beaches away. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of like, a, you know... And, like, you know, the whole the whole issue, really, about... You got, like, the media played such a big role in it, you know, and I'm taking it... I'm taking these out of context. I really I think it made it worse than it had to be, you know I mean? They played a big role in really throwing a lot of... Lot of, sort of yeah, and then, you know, we, so we knew this day was coming up, but, you know, that, you know, the Cronulla guys had said that, you know, we're taking back the beach, and it's going to happen on this day. It was Australia Day, yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, about 10 years ago, wasn't it? And um, yeah, because there's been like so much trouble with, I guess, this ethnic groups coming down and you know hassling the lifeguards and local surfers and local locals of Cronulla, really. Um, yeah, but when it all kicked off, I never expected to, for it to be what it was. What it was, you know what I mean? And, and even now, like, I get more spun out when I look back at footage of it and just go like, because they had a 10 year anniversary. Yeah. So to think of it happening today is so out of this world. Yeah, it's insane. And, you know, for someone who's from an ethnic background, you know, my father came over to Australia as a political refugee from the Czech Republic. Uh, my mum's English, but I've just grown up, you know, we from mates from all race, religions, you know, ethnicities. It's, to see that kind of the crazy thing is your like your nickname Vass is because the boys thought your last name was too hard to pronounce, yeah, right? Exactly, it's just a good old Aussie yeah. uh, abbreviation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever it is, just make it shorter and easier to say. Yeah. So, um, yes, yeah, to, to witness it, and then um, and then have the repercussions of a spillover into Maroubra. Yeah, it was crazy. You know, I guess because of the media said that we're all going down there to support it, we support the cause, and it got very racial, obviously. I mean, and, and um, yeah, like we're. we're we're not angels for sure, but racist, you know, we're definitely not. And, yeah. and for, you know, late that night to spill over, we actually had a, a, a real good mate of ours had a bad car crash and we were up at the hospital at Mamek, seen him, myself, Macario, like a, all our close mates. And then all of a sudden we heard, you know, they're coming down to Maroubra to, you know, for reprisal attacks or whatever. Yeah. That day we've been down the beach having our jiu-jitsu, Brazilian jiu-jitsu um, uh, Christmas party. So we've been down the beach all day, all, all happy, all good, you know, like, 
And then, uh, so we all rushed back down to see what was happening. And then, yeah, there's, we saw you know, the door, you know, jump out the cars and you know, one of the older boys frog run up and, you know, rip into them. And you know, then got the baseball bats came out and it got real ugly. And that's when it really hit home that, yeah, you know, this is, this is a, a crazy, crazy time what's going on. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, like I said, like, like the boys, like, you know, who had been in jail and, you know, moved around in those circles were, were I guess fortunate enough to say to know other guys you know, moved around in those circles and say mate this is getting crazy what's this going to lead because at one stage it's like I remember having like kids on, on building blocks we've got multiple cocktails thinking other guys would come down so I was really going to kick off so the boys are really like geared up thinking this is like what's going to what happened to Toronto going to happen down here yeah. and um, you know, thank God it did and thank, thank God some of the older Ruby guys and some older guys in you know the Lebanese community, other communities, all got together and spoke and said, "Mate, this is all just you know, being blown out of proportion and and um, sort of like you know nipped it in the bud a little bit because it was." That it was, again, you have led right into my next question. Um, do you remember whose idea it was or how it came about? So there was a, for those people that don't know, um, there was a joint press conference between, I guess. Uh, the spokespeople of the Bra Boys yep. and leaders of the Comancheros. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, how important do you think that was to stopping the hostility between the two groups and how did that come about? Do you re- were you there for those discussions or do you remember yeah. how, how that happened? I don't, yeah, I don't know the ins and outs of it. Like I said, I was pretty young. Um, I know that a lot of boys had, you know, time with guys who were young know, the Comancheros and there was always a, somewhat of a bond between the Bra Boys and the Comanchero, just through that kind of lifestyle of what happens inside jail, they got on and whatnot. Um, yeah, and it got to a point where like, we're hearing rumours that carloads of you know young Lebanese or you know uh, other like ethnic groups would come down for reprisal attacks. So the boys were like, really getting up for like a full on you know war. Like I said, they had, they had kids on rooftops with all kinds of stuff. There was like shit all over the beach. If you know if things kicked off, thank God it never happened. But it got reached the point where the boys. And I think, yeah, you know, the other groups, like the commentators went, this is just a load of shit. Getting out of control. What happened down at Cry was horrible. No one really condoned it, you know what I mean? But it was just anger and all kinds of feelings. It's kind of like... Bit of mob mentality as well. Yeah, mob mentality and just alcohol thrown in, media whipped it up. It just, you know, was just uh, stirred up into a bit of a frenzy and just, uh, it it was crazy. And they could see it just really getting ugly and, and not what either group want to be represented by you yeah. know what I mean or, or, or stood for so um, you know like I said the older boys the Aberdeen brothers a few other boys is, uh, spoke to guys who they knew in you know in the Lebanese community and like you know commentaries guys who, I guess had influence in the guys over the guys who were I guess running around trying to you know release some of this anger and like get some um, revenge or whatever it may be because I mean your, your group was a, a- a respected and powerful group in that community and I guess the other side they're a powerful and respected group of that community so those two groups coming together kind of encourages the younger generations to go well, oh well, maybe we need to fucking pull our heads in a little bit yeah definitely you know I think that that's what it was and you know I've got along really good with all the guys out of Canal right there now, I've never that's what I spin out about when I look back at it now because the racism is the last thing I, I ever uh, you know associate with them but um so yeah, to be able to talk to those Especially with your crew as well, like Macario yeah. D'Souza. Yeah, like all, exactly. All, all of my mates, like it's, it's definitely like, um, you know, it's, it's, it's such a, a melting pot of, of you know, backgrounds. You know, shout like, out to Kid Mac as well. <laughs> shout out to Kid Mac. <laughs> D'Souza the DJ. Um, 
So, yeah, like you said, I think they, the people that came together to try and uh, nip in the bud definitely had influence over... Because there's a lot of youth, you know, they're running around trying to, you know, like all young blokes do, to try and go back and, you know, get revenge and whatever it may be, you know, stand up. But, yeah, you could see it just getting really ugly. And, you know, obviously, like, if Islamic sort of leaders got involved too, and it ended up being, like, a really good kind of bonding of, of different communities and... Um, and, and acknowledging what's going on is shit out, you know, and you know, this shouldn't be going on in Australia. So it was fascinating to me to find out how little you guys had to do with it, but how heavily the media attributed everything that happened to your crew. Yeah, and, and I think because around that time too, that's when a lot of the, like the media attention was happening. And you know, Mark Matthews twenty first had just gone down. You know, there's a big sort of blow there with the, with the police and. All that made a lot of media attention. Um, so I think they were just they were just licking their lips to, to try and associate this whole criminal rights with the Maruba and then it was close enough given, that they could yeah all that attention when um, pretty much criminal was like just off off limits really for for reprisal attacks because there's so many police around and whatnot that so these are angry groups of you know youths from whatever you know background they want to get you know their little revenge back to any kind of wax head or you know stereotypical Aussie community they, they, they flocked down to the beaches and Maruba was the closest one so yeah. I guess how it all, it all eventuated but yeah it's great how we got so tied up in it you know from really that but them was were, were heavily responsible for making it go away yeah like had nothing to do with it and then took it upon yourselves to fucking defuse the situation well yeah and I think that's um it, it, I like yeah, you, you said it then, but it's often yeah. You forget about that a lot. You know, you sort of hear. You, oh, you know, I definitely forgot about it. It, it, it. It's kind of a little sad to see that from all the media attention and, and all the media attention about the Brave Boys is warranted. You know, like I said, we were angels, and um, you know, I'm not trying to say like yeah, but but like just for that stuff to get like, like kind of not not nowhere near. Not for the, the right reason. Of, yeah, not nowhere near the amount of airtime that you know other stuff. Did, yeah, know, yeah. Like, you know, someone. Yeah, I guess, I guess, you know, a little pat on the back and forgotten about it, that's yeah. right, you know, but I guess it, it is what it is, but yeah, it, I, I just still, you know, 10 years removed, it, I look back and go, wow, that was so 13 wild. now. 13, is yeah. it? Yeah. So, so that um, was 2005, which um, I guess for you, your group was a pretty fucked up year. Um, that was the same year that everything went down with Jai. Um, what do you remember about that? Yeah, that was... Um, yeah, again, there's something at that time. It was so so much craziness going on. You kind of like get caught up in it. But what happened when and why and whatnot. But you know the whole Jai and uh, and Hansi thing. Um, I was over in Bali with Kobe actually, and and Ev and Rooster, and we were surfing over there. But I um, I'd grown up looking up to Jai you know, as an idol you know, since. I got down the beach, you know. Before Jai being the oldest of the Abedin brothers, right? Uh, second oldest. Second oldest, oldest, yeah. Right. And Jai's the second oldest. Um, and just because he was fearless in the water, he was such a kind of a larger-than-life character, you know. And then I got to know Tony through Jai. And, you know, as a kid, another larger-than-life character, someone you just sort of... And when they were around, like, I was just this... this my eyes are like dinner plates, just hanging on every word you were saying, and all these you know, crazy stories about Bali or France or what they did last night, or you know, trips here, trips there. And then, um, yeah, like actually, the ins and outs of what happened, like you know, I was well removed from that about you know, 
what kind of lifestyle Tony led or when I, he came down and told me to put his car in my name and uh, as a you know, 20 year old, 20 year old kid, he, uh, Tony Hines says put my car in your name, I'm like yeah, no, you paid me a bunch of money to do it, I think it wasn't any illegal, so me and Tony got, got on really well, you know, and I knew him a lot, a lot more for that, so, um, but I knew that he, you know, he was a very intense character, you know, and from you know, stories you hear around the beach and then, yeah, then uh, to be over in Bali to hear that, Guy had shot him and thrown off a cliff. It was, um, yeah, it, it was crazy. You know, Kobe was it was like spinning out, just couldn't believe what had happened and, and what, you know, didn't know what he was going to get off a plane to, you know, back in Sydney while we are in Bali. So, yeah. so you obviously drop everything that you're doing and get on the first plane home or? Yeah, pretty, actually, we actually got the news of it, like, just right at the end of the trip, so we're coming back home anyway. Right. But, um, yeah. So, you know, I think, like I said, my... And what's the game plan when you get back? Like, get all the boys together and figure, like... Well, I, I didn't, there was no game plan, really. Like, I said, I, I didn't know the situation with Jai and, and Heinze and, and the lead-up to it or what happened or anything, you know. I always thought they were, they were basically mates and I was, because they were such intense characters, you know, I don't know, if, you, if there was a disagreement, I'd, you could never see any kind of... Kind of you couldn't see any other resolution than something happening, you know what yeah. I mean? But I didn't know what was going on between them. I, mean, I, was, I was just a 20-year-old kid who just, you know, was having a few beers and a good time. And, and what went on in that world was like, you know, kind of like a little bit foreign to me. But to hear what happened and then get home and, yeah, there was a lot more... Obviously, the tension came straight on the cave. So, like, like me, Evan Rooster, who had just been away with him. But, of course, having my... The car in, you know, Tony's car in my name, I got pulled in and questioned and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, like, I, I was pretty dumb and young and naive and just basically that's, that's, that's how I was. At least I didn't know what was going on. I don't know why it happened and, you know, whatnot. So it was just a crazy situation. Um, and, but I could see, like, it, it was, it was, you know, obviously a greater toll on Kobe and Sonny and, you know, Dakota was pretty young at the time, but, um, I still just couldn't imagine that it happened, to be honest, you know, like, yeah, yeah, I'd been out with Tony not too long before, like, you know, he would get parking fines and obviously the car was in my name, so I'd say, Tony, you got to pay some parking <laughs> fines, yeah, yes, we come, come down here and I'll give the money and then all of a sudden we'll be at, you know, some strip club at four in the morning, you know what I mean, and I'm like, you got to pay these fines, it's like, yeah, yeah, and he's just like, I just blew all my money on fucking lap dances. Yeah, but it was just like, it was just like, that's how he was, it was like, like it was, yeah, as a 20 year old kid, you're like, like how good's that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Shout you everything or not, and, You'd, go, you'd just go home with the story to tell your mates, but yeah. Um, yeah, obviously, like I didn't, I didn't really understand about it. And, like, and me, me and Joel just, just, I just loved him because he was, you know, one of those older guys who took me on the surf and got big and gave me surfboards when I was a grommet, you know, and when the, yeah, gave me a bigger ball when the waves got big and always threw me a wetsuit. So to, to find out it all pan, like the way it all panned out, I was like ins and outs of it and the reasons right. as to why. Because um, you guys, I mean, from what I understand, you guys had no issue. Like if if there was uh, intergroup problems, you'd uh, throw down to sort out your... I mean, sometimes just for fun, from what I've heard, just fucking blew with the boys. But if there was a if there was an issue, you settled it man to man and then it was done and you grab a beer and move on, right? Yeah, like you know, a lot of the time, and that's what happens now, you know, the boys have a little... Uh, disagreement or whatever it's generally after too many beers and they have a little scuffle and before you know they're hugging and you know, confessing their love to each other and it's all, it's all rosy again um, yeah but some, some of this the real Aussie way obviously you couldn't, couldn't have been kept that way you know yeah um, yeah but like like I said with, with two such extreme characters um, 
they kind of just yeah yeah but through through that lifestyle and through that dispute resolution process that the boys had that's how you end up finding bjj right yeah um pretty much yeah like we i always loved training as a kid We'd be like cross country or whatever it was playing, uh, but like definitely down in Maruba, you know, guys like Ronnie Reed who was fighting for as, as a boys professional boxer, fighting for Australian title, and you know, Sonny Abbott was always you know a great boxer, would always train Ronnie, and and then Kobe was was super into training, you know, to stay fit for big waves. So I, I just love that, you know, staying fit. So if the waves were big, you felt confident being being out there, you could handle whatever happened, you know. So um, you know, training, trying to stay fit was always a, you know, a big part of growing up. And, and, and obviously as a young boy, you always want to be able to sort of think and handle yourself in, yeah. you know, in the scuffle. And so we had Ronnie and Kobe and so like showing us how to do the pads. And, and then uh, like Jimmy Olsen was another one who you know, had a professional boxing fight and he's now a black belt in Jiu-Jitsu and would always um, you know, take us through training sessions. We had a, uh, one of the bra boys, he's a Kiwi, he now lives back in, over in NZ called Big Bitch, who was uh, you know, a kickboxing champion from over in, New Zealand who would put us through pads and all kinds of stuff. So there's always a big part of um, you know of growing up and yeah, basically the jiu-jitsu as a as a just a a way to stay fit, but also as a, as a different element of, of combat sports that yeah. we're really um, addicted to, I guess. Um, I'd always love wrestling as a kid. Like when I played footy, all I wanted to do was tackle. I wasn't yeah. keen to run the ball. I just wanted to tackle and. And to find grappling in there, BJJ was uh, was unreal. And Sonny introduced us to uh, Bruno Pano and, and Alex Pratt, a couple of Brazilian guys, and moved down to the beach, uh, you know, surfing and you know doing this thing called jiu-jitsu we'd never never heard about. And before they knew it, they showed a few guys um, a few submissions, and next thing you know, we were all coming to their classes. And then eventually, Bruno opened an academy in Maruba, and I guess you know all the boys flocked to it. And it was just uh, you know, I, I loved it. I, I just I, I love that learning a new skill. I love the practicality of it all. I love the, yeah, there's just a different aspect of training. Um, you know, so I think we all start training within two weeks. We're going in this New, new South Wales Federation Cup Jiu-Jitsu uh, tournament now. Because Bruno's really keen on encouraging like, you yeah, compete with training, let's go and compete as a team. And that, that, again, that camaraderie, that, that training, going and competing for your academy yeah. was uh, was awesome. So going there with all your mates and uh, you know, the, all same the same as representing age, your beach. You know and, and, yeah, and, and uh, it was uh, as unreal, and yeah, I, I just loved it. I just say, you know, I still love today. So, and that's eventually will lead me to mixed martial arts. But it's, yeah. now Bruno runs uh, Gracie's in Alexandria now, exactly, right? Exactly. Yeah. Now Gracie's now they're sort of all over Sydney now. Um, Who's Gracie he a black belt under? Uh, Hoyler. Right. Yeah. So, and I Hoyler legit as fuck. You know what I mean? I Hoyler's a surfer. So he, we had an academy. Uh, one of our first was at Maruba's uh, Surf Lifesaving Club. Yeah, right. right. On the beach. So we would all train upstairs. We roll the mats out. You know, train for an hour and a half, whatnot, and then just run straight in the ocean and have a swim, and it was just like that's the dream, right? So competitive, too. yeah, it was <laughs> awesome. Man. We all we all got super competitive, and you, and you want to miss the session because your mate would learn a new technique, and then you go the next week get caught by those new techniques. So like, yeah. everyone really sort of you know stuck at it, and then uh, yeah, it was just like it could have been in a better you know a better scenario, just training at the surf club and then running the ocean they having Hoyler come out and teaching seminars and going for surf with Hoyler and then you know it was just um, surfing and, and BJJ really go hand in hand and I think yeah the boys at Maruba just took it you know like a duck to water and it's, uh, it's still down there today you know yeah. and it's just thriving and BJJ as a whole for Australia has just taken off yeah I don't know if you realise, but when you were talking about that, you just had this big fucking grin on your face. It's yeah. obviously good times. 
It was. Yeah, it was just. Yeah, it was the best times. Just um, you know, train down there Monday, Wednesday, Friday nights, and then on Friday nights, you'd you know, you'd, you'd rip your gear off, throw your workshop bag, you'd be in the pub with your gear over your shoulder, you know, on the beers, just you know, <laughs> twenty meters away from where you trained, and um, the next thing you're rolling around the ground doing jujitsu again, you know, ten yeah. o'clock in the pub, just trying to you know get, get a new submission. You just got taught. So yeah, it was funny. You know, everyone was trying to put each other to sleep and stuff. That uh, down the pub, we were all doing this. Uh, you know, this, this new art of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, but Bruno quickly put his foot down and said, boys, it's not to be, you know, you train, but don't be put to sleep. Each other to sleep down the pub, yeah. you know I mean, after training. Yeah, yeah. So, but, um, yeah, it was just that competitive go hard or go home attitude, I guess, um, you know, read his head again down at Maruba, and we all just, yeah, got stuck in and, like I said, competed as a team, you know, wanted to follow the flag for our academy, and, um, you know, and then we had guys like Alex Pratt, Ian Schaefer, who were part of our academy, start... Uh, competing in, in mixed martial arts and I'd always loved boxing you know like from growing up you know, well before I was introduced to BJJ just a lot of the old rude boys would push to the past like I said and um, yeah so I love to box I love this stuff called BJJ there's there's your stand up there's your ground let's, um, let's give this MMA thing a go so were you were you a fan of MMA growing up did you know what UFC was yeah like- I, I, I did like Kobe used to have his old VHS you know tapes of um yeah, the first UFCs and, and it, to be honest I was a fan in watching but I, was, I wasn't a fan of everything I'd give it a go you know yeah um, yeah so like I was pretty taken aback by when I first saw it that was before I really learned any sort of boxing or procedures and that's what it was that's what it in fairness, those first few events were the fucking wild yeah, west. Yeah, exactly. You know, like, <laughs> uh, yeah, it wasn't something I watched. Oh, jeez, that's what I want to do. It was, like, that yeah. was far from it. Teeth you know, flying. Like, yeah, I was like, oh, I'm going to go for a surf, you know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you, you learn like elements of mixed martial arts, and then obviously it evolved a lot since then to when I got involved. Yeah. But, um, you know, and then, like I said, I just thought, I love boxing. I love... Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I was competing in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu at the time and I, and I was having you know, a little bit of success. So I thought, let's go in it for the experience. Like, if I don't like it, I'll freeze up and, and you know, get this not punched out of me. Well, then it's not, it's not for me. I go back, you know. And it's probably not the first time it's happened. Yeah. yeah, so. well, yeah and you know, what, like, Robert abuse down the beach too probably primed me for a little bit of uh, a yeah, yeah. as well. Like, I was, I was definitely, um, you know, not afraid of a scrap? No, it was just cheeky, you know what I mean? And like, you're, you're a cheeky little woman on the beach, you always got your fair share of hiding yeah. just because, you know, your your mouth was bigger than, you know, your physique was. And yeah, I yeah. was trying to be cheeky the other way because the next thing I knew I'd be tied to a pole, you know, getting stuck <laughs> by a thong, you know? So, um, it probably helps in a way. You know? Yeah, right. <laughs> Small man syndrome too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that helps. So you're, um, you ju- how, how are you juggling big wave surfing, um, you you starting out in MMA and a full, you got a full time job laying carpet as well. Yeah, I was, I was really lucky, really, in in all those like like training for mixed martial arts really helped you know, my big wave surfing because whenever the waves were big, I felt like I was you know I was fit enough to handle whatever you know was thrown at me. So and, and like like in both sports, it's all about you know, your mental approach. If you believe it, you're fit enough and you. You, know, you you got no you're not hesitating you got no questions about you know you, you're going to perform a lot better and it's the same in mixed martial arts if you know you've done the work you're going to fight you know um, and you perform a lot better knowing that confidence that you know you've done the work so um, and as for, for carpet laying I mean it's funny down Maruba it's like, or, like so many other boys are, are carpet layers it's just one of those trades that took off down the beach and 
if you're a young bloke needing work, or you know, go down to the pub, have a beer, and yeah, I'll, I'll grab you tomorrow, come and you know, be at my house at seven o'clock, and and uh, you know, go like carpet. Everyone down the river's done a, a day or two laying carpet. Yeah. And I was just, I was straight out of high school. I didn't know what I want to do. I didn't want to go uni, but you know, I wanted to surf or travel and. Um, needed to make some money to fund the lifestyle exactly and, you know, I had no lofty goals or anything but um, I, I, my, my, my main goal was just to surf and try and make it as a as a, you know, a bit of a big wave surfer get a few sponsors on board and just follow what Kobe had sort of laid out in front of us and Mark Matthews was doing the same so I thought yeah that's what, that's what I wanted to do and you know when the waves when there's no waves around get labouring and try to earn a bit of cash so you can fund your surf trips yeah and, um, yeah uh, Warren Fox um, an Alberta boy was, I was just down at the pub and he lost his license so he's like Rich you got your license I said yeah it's got me my pee plates he goes you're working at the moment I was just labouring you know, I get like 90 bucks a day labouring carrying bricks and digging holes um, he goes I'll pay you that to drive me around you know to carpet jobs I was like beautiful let's do it so I was just driving around to carpet jobs and of course being there you know I tried to help out when he started laying carpet and I started picking up the trade and he was a surfer himself and just you know, just a legend so Shout out Warren Fox funding yes, the yes, lifestyle in the early days. <laughs> we call the flock the Fox bloodlines. They still run deep and rule all the carpet layers. It's um yeah like spawned a generation. Yeah, his son's laying carpet now with Jimmy Olsen, another another Ruben legend. But um yeah, so but whenever the waves were pumping, I was like, well, the waves are pumping. He knew how keen I was. Yeah, yeah. He knew like when the waves were big. And this is when all that slab surfing was just kicking off. Like I said, and Kobe was chasing waves. Mark was chasing waves. He knew how much it meant to me to go and chase waves. He was like, yeah, all right, you find someone to drive the car tomorrow, you know what I mean, go surf. And yeah. so I was lucky that I could live a bit of both. You know, I could lay as much carpet as I like. And if I wasn't there, obviously, you know, was would find someone to drive while helping me. And then, you know, I'd go surfing with the boys. And then in the meantime, train, you know, every night, you know, doing BJJ was really what I started into. But then when it was mixed martial arts, I was doing boxing and, you know, all the other components. And that really just fed into the confidence when I was in the water too, because I was like, you know, I'm... I'm fit as a fiddle. I can hold me breath for you know, as long as I need to be, and it just really—I just felt invincible at that age. You know? yeah. It doesn't matter where we went: Chipstones, WA, Hawaii. Um, they really complement each other well, you know. Uh, so yeah, I was really fortunate to have Was as a boss when I was laying carpet, teach me the trade of carpet laying, but also give me all the time in the world to go and chase waves. And then um, yeah, like I said, all the boys are doing jujitsu at the time and competing in that. So it was just really fun, like at night to go and train the boys as well and. Compete and then you know that led into to other things as well. So it was you've, just uh, you've just mentioned really a few times um, how important, like even even living those the wild years, partying and fucking running off on surf trips and doing everything that you're doing. You still have mentioned quite a few times how important the fitness aspect of surfing is. Like you, were, it seems like you were still super dedicated to the craft in that respect and committed to putting in the work behind the scenes to make yourself a better surfer which is kind of a contradiction to the rest of the life that you were leading at the time because everything else that you were doing was probably working against you yeah yeah and definitely that, that's changed over time but at that age you, you can burn the, the wick at both ends you know I think I thought if I if I trained Monday to Friday every night I could get blind drunk Friday, Saturday, Saturday Sunday, Sunday yeah wake up, train Monday, work and, you know, and do it just, all over again. Like if I can, you know, if I train Monday to Friday, I can do whatever I want on the weekend. Yeah, you know? yeah. And then, uh, and I could, like, I, like, it, I was just still fit as a fiddle. I, you know, I was winning fights. I was competing in jiu-jitsu, doing well, training every night, like I said, every night through the week. Felt great. And just like I said, when you're 21, 22, it's like, you can, you can do that. And yeah, get away take on the world. And yeah, I guess to get a certain level. And that's when I started to like, 
know, take things more seriously. But yeah, at that stage, and it was all about like I, I was just you know, um, you know, suck up with peer pressure, and I just wanted to you know do everything. Yeah, do everything. I was like that go hard or go home attitude is was in every facet of my life. You know, yeah, I want to lay as much calf as I can because there was a competition down the beach who laid the most meters that day. You know, because like, I said there's so many guys laying you know carpet down the river. You want to be down to surf that harbour going. I need 40 metres with fern and stairs, you know, like more than you make. Yeah, yeah. Like and then training, obviously, you want to you want to go as hard as you can. Training with the waves got big, you want to be out there. And, and of course, on the weekends, you want to party harder than your mates as well. But yeah. um, that can only go on for so long until it bites you in the bum, which it, you know, it did. And then uh, it made me realise, you know, lifestyle's got to change a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Um, talk us through the Bra Boys documentary. How, how did that come about? At what point did you realise... It, it was a serious thing like it wasn't just Mac running around with a video camera and it, it it could be something bigger than just mates fucking mucking around you know what I mean no well, yeah I don't remember really when that happened because it was, it was so much of it it felt like that you know because we growing up with Mac he'd always had this you know, this eye for film and he's such a creative side whether it be music or you know creating short films we were so used to having him with the camera around. So when this, you know, the Broadway documentary con- concept came up, and while he was filming for me, didn't know it was going to be a Broadway documentary. Where he was just, no, it was just Mac and Mac. Yeah, So, um, and then obviously it kind of, they started to really tape, and they started to do like get a bit of media attention and get some reviews and give it a hype behind it. it was, yeah, it was just kind of surreal, you know. What I mean, and then we're doing premieres here and there, with LA and. And that's when it was, you know, really, and then the awards that came with it, you know, and the amount of people going to the cinemas to see it, I was like, yeah, it was, it was great. And even at that, like, in that time, I still wasn't really taking all that in. I didn't really know any of that stuff. I didn't know yeah. it was seeing what, but, but, um, but just then how many people were aware of the documentary, you know, and how many people were... At what point did you find it? out about Russell Crowe's involvement? That's got to be a fucking massive trip, like, yeah, well, even know. though he's a... He's a He's not a bra boy, but someone from the area. Yeah. Um, but someone of his profile lending yeah, his name just, to it. Yeah, you know, South, you know, home support and all that kind of stuff. And they actually came in the beach and the pub and had a big, had a big kind of like a big talk about, you know, Southing and then, you know. So that, that relation with him and Maruba, I guess, you know, we've done Sun playing in South and you know, all the moves that young guys you know, grew up playing in South. And then they got on Cove and then and the Abbott Brothers. Um, I guess looking back, it kind of just was a bit of a no-brainer, but yeah, well, yeah, it was pretty wild to see. I had to have him put his name to it and and um, and just be so like approachable with it too. You know, come down to the pub and talk to the boys and you know, yeah, it was. Uh, that, Did that spin that you out probably, at the that time? That was the point where you realised this is a, this is bigger than one of Max's little short documents. Yeah, yeah. This is bigger than a short film that Max putting together and and then uh, and, and just the scale of you know actually getting to go on surf trips to you know. Southwestern Australia or Hawaii or Tahiti, you know, and get paid like you get not 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 get paid, everything's getting paid for, you know, like yeah. you just get funded. Like, what's going on here? You know, what I mean, like, so this, this was that a trip at the time, like fucking gladiators narrating our life? Yeah, well, like it was. A, yeah, it was a trip when you, you know, for the first time when I saw like a rough collar and heard his voice, I was like, far out, you know, like, <laughs> I'm such a fan of gladiator, like you said. And it was like same guys just talking about us now, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then just, yeah, it, it, you know, I was so fortunate at the time, like I said, to, to sort of be hovering on a coach's wing and just to, just to be part of those surf trips. You know, this, I just love the adventure of going to chasing these slab waves of parts of the world you've never been to before and, 
going into the humiliation and not knowing what you know, expected, have have all that as a part of this documentary that we're building, you know. So probably gave you a little bit of added bravado too. You probably went ways that you probably normally wouldn't have gone, but yeah. you, know, you know the cameras rolling. Yeah. So uh, it was um yeah, so and then obviously everything else that happened around our time too was yeah, it was crazy. So you said at the time you didn't fully comprehend the uh, the scale or the magnitude of what the documentary would become. Do you do you know now how big it is? Like it, it's the highest grossing non IMAX documentary in Australian history. Yes, yes, it is crazy, isn't it? You know, it is. That's um, a fucking staggering statistic. Yeah. <laughs> now I guess with that that whirlwind of everything that was happening at the time, you know, what I mean, there's so much media attention. I guess yeah, people were just. Guess that. as to what it was all about, you know. So to have the documentary come out you know, after, it was uh, perfect timing, and, and I guess what was happening it was pretty surreal, you know. It was pretty um, unique in a way, with happening and um, definitely the Aberdeen's lives, and it was uh, I definitely didn't expect that response, though. You know, like I just did, still thought this could just easily fizz. You know, what are we doing? This is, oh, I'm stoked. We're going over to you know to Hawaii to chase waves or WA to surf and. For this documentary, you know, I don't have to pay for a plane ticket. I was yeah. like, yeah, this is sick. You know? Yeah, probably fierce and not end up making the screens or whatever. Yeah, but yeah. yeah um, it, it was just a sick adventure. But then just to see it all do as well as it did. And, you know, I was so stoked for Mac to, 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 for him, you know, as a, you know, we grew up at high school together, we were best mates. See him put his heart and soul into a project and then see the accolades it did and the response it did. I was just like, he put so much hard work in that, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, as is Sonny and Brooks Oester and Mick Lawrence, you know, all the guys who are behind it. But for someone, you know, who, who's buddy from high school. Um, it's that little bit extra special. Yeah, so that, that's, yeah. That was surreal and yeah, a real moment over there. Speaking of with Russell getting on board too, so. Yeah, it all just kind of stayed, but I guess it was all, you know, like timings, everything, you know? Yeah. I guess, and that was just one of those things where, Timing for that documentary, you know, it was perfect. Um, and the boys, like I said, there's so much media attention. That's what, you know, I think Sonny and the guys who put it together with Brooke and, and Mick Lawrence, I said, oh, look, let's just put our story forward. You know, there's so much media attention. I was gonna say, is that, was, was, was it a case of? It was like, I think, misconstrued and not exactly correct. So, yeah, okay, let's put, let's put our story forward. Right. You know? The history of the beach. So the history, like I said earlier, you know, the brother was, that community, that brotherhood, that, that camaraderie who's always been there, been named, you know, several different names over the, you know, the past 80 years. Um, so let's put our story of the, of the place, you know, from past to present, put it forward and, and um, yeah. So it was a case of kind of dispelling a lot of the myths and rumours around the crew and putting out your guys' version of who you are, what you stand for, what the beach means to you, what the group means to you. Yeah, definitely. You know, I think that's a big part of the idea behind it. Uh, to, to see that, you know, get it, get it, you know, somewhat of it, uh, it was, uh, I guess, majority of it, uh, it was a positive response. Now, obviously, there was some, some negative response to it as well, but um, it, it was good just to get that out there too, you know. Like, I, I was proud of the documentary and proud to have the place represented and the boys represented in that light and to, to you know, as a, a little bit to contrast of what was going on in the media. Yeah. So, yeah. You were riding this big wave of momentum, so to speak, surfing, training, um, hanging out with the boys, doing whatever. And then um, what do you remember about what happened in Cooley after Fano's World Championship win? Yeah. 
That was, um, yeah, like I said, it was a, a, like a moment I look back and reflect, it's definitely not something I'm real proud of, but it, it was um, off the back of all that, you know, the success of the Bravo Docos, all the, the high boy just you know, started fighting this martial arts, had a few, you know, pretty good wins, and, and um, I was on the Gold Coast actually that weekend, one of my training partners and coaches, Alex Pratt, was fighting, um, so I went up there to support him. This is CFC? Uh, yeah, it was CFC, Cage, it was good Cage Warriors, uh, sorry, Warriors Realm, right. world, and they, they kind of merged to be the same promotion. But um, so I happened to be at this point in, Mick had just won his first world title. I've got a bunch of mates on the Goldie, so I was like, perfect, hang up there for a few extra days, give them the beers of the boys up there and celebrate Miss Win, you know. So um, yeah, that's what it was. And you know, I've never, never been a great drunk, and when you get a little bit excited and they get a bit too quick, I just got. Way too drunk that night and, um, you know, carrying like a gig and got in an argument at the pub and, you know, got caught outside by a bunch of guys and thought it would be a good idea to go out because, you know, my ego was bigger than uh, my brain at the time and, yeah, it all spilled into a bit of an all-in brawl and luckily the boys I was with um, came out to help me out and I got pretty dust at the start and ended up um, getting up and, you know, assaulting one of the guys who was with the other group that we were in a fight with but wasn't actually involved in the fight, so... Um, yeah, I woke up next day, got me flight, thought nothing of it, you know what I mean? Um, it was around that time, you know, like getting in the scuffles, it wasn't that big a deal. And uh, yeah, went home with a bit of a headache and, and that you know, that was basically thought it. thought that'd be the end of it. Yeah, you know, because the majority of what I re- recorded the night was kind of getting, you know, dusted outside by a bunch of guys and, you know, then, um, yeah, like if it wasn't for the other boys running out and giving us a hand, it, you know, it would have been pretty ugly. So, end up, yeah all getting sorted out the front and then um yeah it was like two or three months later i was you know i was just i was working one day uh, i just moved out of home but um my mum had called me and said oh you know a constable had come around or officer so-and-so looking for you um you know what's going on i was like oh well, that, well that's about he goes well they went to pop it into the police station and and um i have a chat like at this point are you trying to think what have I done in the last three days or week and a half yeah, exactly. or two yeah you know, that was at the time where like I said I was still burning the wick at both ends where you know this like, could be any number of things yeah I've been like you know like I said yeah I, I had no idea what it was about like yeah so I just finished work that day went in my work clothes just walked into the police station today you know my name Richard Vasilik so and so was looking for me um yeah what's in relation to so you know why just come out the back and sit in here and just basically sat in the cell and yeah, uh, they uh, locked it up and said, oh, you, you know, you get extra back to Queensland. And then I, basically all, all I was told, you know, sort of five days went on, I got bounced around cells and, uh, down here in Sydney, got flown up to South Southport, um, like holding cells up there uh, for a few days. You know, obviously started to work out. I was asked a question, they weren't giving me too much. But yeah, I was thrown on a plane in handcuffs, you know, marched through the Sydney airport and then marched through Pullingala airport in handcuffs. Like I just, I think it was a Monday, and I just you know, had like shit from you know just finishing working, only big work clothes, and looked like a little terrorist getting bored on the plane in handcuffs, and uh, obviously found out it was about the night when Mick won his world title. We had a scuffle outside the Coolangatta uh, Sands Hotel, and one of the guys involved in that um, that I had hit and uh, had a, and a pretty you know, nasty injury with a broken jaw, and saying that yeah you know, he wasn't involved in the fight, but he he was there and. And um, yeah, I had to go up there and face the music basically. So I was, I was spinning out a bit, but I really obviously realised the, the severity of it all. The fact that I was getting escorted on the plane with police and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I got charged with grievous bodily harm. 
and then had to you know, sort of go through like a about ten months of court and you know bar- like barristers and lawyers to try and um, sort it all out. And and, and you know, all in all, the, the way it panned out was, you know, I um, luckily the the victim of the whole case who, you know, both our statements really lined up and said he he watched me get clipped up the front and got I got slippered as I was trying to get back to my feet and. And then he was there standing, and you know, I got back to my feet and got up and hit him. And so Damon really helped me out in my my recollection of it, and saying that he was there with his mates who were having a fight, but he wasn't involved. There was in no the way fight. for you to differentiate between who he was and who he, you and. Yeah, exactly. All I know. Yeah, and then um, so yeah, the, the judge pretty much saw it for what it was. I was just you know, I admitted to being in the fight, and uh, um, uh, but you know, with the circumstances around it, the judge just sort of you know trying. Young idiots getting into a, you know, a fight for no real reason, just being you know, young and dumb. And were you concerned that your reputation or your affiliation would negatively affect the outcome? Oh, oh definitely. And just and what influence that was the media around at the time. You know, I got uh, Daily Telegraph gave me a bit of a serving down here that you know, Bravoy mixed martial arts. Like, there's ever made at the time wasn't called ever made. It was called cage fighting. Yeah. You know, it was pretty new on the scene here in Australia. Human you know, cockfighting. Yeah, exactly. That's barbaric. They're knuckleheads. Um, and given the fact that I was a Bravoy, they were just like, you know, they just, they just jumped on it. You know, saying, so, you know, he, yeah, he's a professional fighter. He's just going there beating guys up for no reason. Um, yeah, but like I said, it was my it was the victim of the whole instant statement who really kind of like put on the light and just made up mind saying, yeah, it wasn't um, Richie got kind of like clipped first and then yeah, um, wrongly assaulted me and I admitted to that as well and thank God they got recorded as a no conviction. Um, and I just had to pay a fine or not pay some pay the victim some some uh, some victims of comp and, and that was you know. As eventually it all came down to it, but it was, a, it was a massive wake-up call, you know, like I said. About around that time of burning the wicket both ends, it, you know, this is the consequence of that lifestyle, you know. So was that the turning point? It was. You know, I, I just had some success, uh, in, you know, with some sponsors for big wave surfing. Just just getting started in the mixed martial arts. Um, and things were pretty looking, you know, pretty rosy. You know, there's a bit of potential there if I was to stick out and keep succeeding in, in both sports. It, um, you know, there might be a future. So if this happened, you know, sponsors could all walked away. I mean, I can't get any fights or, um, you know, all sorts of things. So it was a really, yeah, like I said, it was a moment I really wasn't proud of. But uh, having not have learnt that experience, or gone through that experience and learnt those lessons, um, had the head on my shoulders to, to really take fighting seriously and surfing seriously and, and, and incur that lifestyle, like I said, and stop trying to burn the wicket both ends. and take fighting more seriously. Um, was it a case of, I don't want to lose the opportunity to do both these things? It was, and it was also like, I don't, this is not what I want to be known, this is not what I want to be known for, you know? My you know, my family was torn up. Obviously I was sincerely remorseful to the victim as well, and, and now they were obviously super upset by it and you know causing you know, that family all that kind of pain, and that's not what I want to be known for. Like I'm not an angel, but I'm not a mug who goes out, you know, assaults people for no reason. That's not what I wanted to be like associated with or known for. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I wanted to sort of take things more seriously and get back into doing things positive, like not necessarily to get rec- uh, recognition for doing something like that, but just uh, also do things that bring me joy too. That whole experience of going through those ten months and going to court, it was like it was the most miserable ten months of my life. Yeah. And I realised that going out and, and gambling drunk on the weekends and 
getting in scuffles and getting in trouble. That's not really what made me happy. You know, what made me happy was going out, chasing waves with your mates, and testing yourself in the ocean, and you know, and yeah, and also you know, mixed martial arts is new in my life then, and it was it was training, learning new skills of training, you know, competing in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, competing in boxing, and then competing in you know, mixed martial arts, and just really testing myself. And that those that made me say that brought so much more joy into my life than going partying and getting blind drunk ever did, you know. So I was like, why am I? Why am I not focusing more on that than, than going again blind drunk and getting blind drunk? All the trouble I've ever experienced all comes off drinking too much. Yeah. Drink, you know? So that's what, all right, well, let's do more of what makes you happy. Yeah. And not only makes me happy, but you know, my mum was sick of me watching me get drunk and get in trouble and you know, like all the people that Having mean, cops knock on their door. Yeah, like all the people who mean, you know, who I loved and cared for, they, they were suffering through it too, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, my, my relationship at the time with my now wife, that we were you know, going out well from 18 to 22, um, you know, we broke up because of that, you know? We, you know, we had a lot. So it was just, there was no real positive, positive, yeah, positives coming out of drinking and carrying on a goose. So after that, you do Fighting Fear. Um, looks at what happened, how hard, it, how hard was it to put out there in such a public way um, everything that you had been through up and up until that point because I mean as much as you were a part of the Bra Boys documentary it wasn't necessarily focused so intently on you whereas Fighting Fear was all about you and all about Mark yeah. was there any trepidation in like do I put this story out there or well, it, it, it might have been the start, but given that you know the director was 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 Macca, you know Macara D'Souza, who's been you know, best mate through high school, there was there was no dodging. There was no saying no. Questions, you know, there's no dodging trying to sugarcoat things or or um, you know, sidestep events or whatever it may be. You know, so you know, going into it, I knew that he said, "Well, this is the way that I want to approach it." Um, yeah, like, like like I said, from the outset, I. I guess I've always uh, someone to put my hand up and say, yeah, you know, I'm fucked up and, and embarrassing as it may be or what, you know, as, as shameful it may be, yeah, it's just, um, I feel like definitely in my head initially, but in the long run, yeah. You know, is the move. Is the move, yeah, it's definitely got something you look, when you look back at, I'm just owning up to it and taking ownership, so. Would you have done it so openly if it wasn't Mac? There's no way I'd be able to open up in front of someone if it hadn't been Mac, you know, like, I, I, you know, to some of the issues and some of the topics that we talked about in Fire and Fear, there's no way I would have been as comfortable to, you might have got bits and pieces out, but not, not you know. It's pretty warts and Yeah, all. like I, and he knew the questions to ask and I, and I feel comfortable enough to go and asking anything, you know, but he knew where to poke and prod and, yeah, so if I was trying to sugarcoat out something, he would, you know, he would dig a bit deeper and, and like, it was Mark, he knew me, you know, as well as anyone, so yeah. I wasn't even an attempt to try and, yeah. Uh, had it been someone else there asking those questions, could have got away with that. And now obviously, you know, probably encouraged me, me to do more, you know, and I've just should have more things. But, um, yeah, I mean, that, the whole, you know, getting in trouble and, and, and going through court and that kind of stuff, but uh, it definitely made me mature a lot more and reassess of what it meant to be a young bloke. You know, you're always a young bloke, you're trying to impress your peers and, you know, trying to prove you're growing into a man and that kind of stuff. It kind of made me reassess a lot of that and, and go hard or go home attitude kind of isn't always the way you want to live your life, you know what I mean? It was yeah. beneficial in some parts of my life, definitely in surfing and, and, and fighting and training hard. And, um, 
but living that lifestyle 24-7, it wasn't there, it wasn't as it is, you know. Didn't leave it like, yeah, a, a, such a positive impact in your life as like, you know, you were thought growing up as a kid, so it was, uh, yeah, I wanted to sort of be, be true to myself and, and uh, own up to it and, and, and move on into the future. Um, if I can you know, lead by example, do anything to get known by, have, have a, 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 a positive effect. Yeah. And following on the back of the Bra Boys documentary, did you think that this could have the, that same success? Yeah, we were like always unsure. And when Mac approached myself and Mark, me and Mark were both like, really? You want to like, you think there's something that people want to, it's always a little bit unsure, but given the fact the response to the Bra Boys, you know, anything's possible, I guess. So we just went into it. And it was never set lofty goals or like never really had high expectations or whatever it was. I was just stoked to be able to travel with Mark and Mac and, um, just have a heap of fun and you know that was just so caught up in doing that that the then result was just like we'll take care of itself regardless <laughs> i was just like so stoked that mac was doing so well he's producing his feature film you know what i mean like in his mid-20s um mark was on fire you know probably at this stage he was like you know one of the world's big best big wave servers you know he kind of like caught up to kobe probably surpassed him you know and um do you want me to leave that bit in there in case Kobe hears this? I think you tell Kobe. He knows that Mark overtook him for sure. Um, there's, there's no question there, I reckon. Kobe comes with a pretty hard argument to, to answer that. But um, yeah, it was just, yeah, it was unreal. And yeah, we were hoping that people were going to want to enjoy it. I mean, because we were, both myself and Mark, you know, we're laying so much of our personal lives on, like, out in this project that, that um, people would resonate in just some degree and, and enjoy watching it or um, but yeah not not really like we want to beat the Bravo like, oh, we want the same success yeah, it, was yeah. just, it was much more of a mates like a mates vibe around this little project you know it, it went back to feeling like uh, one of Mac's little short film projects you know? yeah. like it just it, because it was just representing us it wasn't representing the whole community and stuff um, yeah and you know we, we had much biggest saying and what we did with it where we went and what trips we did and and it was always just you know the core of it was with myself mark macker and and, and Mick. yeah it was just I like I never is it cool to that. have oki and fucking kelly slater and bj penn and that like featured in that yeah it was and, and that's it like i think like i never really knew who had Mac and had, had, you know, sort of had ideas to interview and who had he, who he did get to interview and what they had said or whatnot. So that was kind of like, I was kind of always removed from all that, you know, so to see those guys get in, you know, in the doco and say what they said, you know, it, was, it was pretty cool. And um, just to have them give their time to our little project was, was something that we're pretty stoked by. Did you, had you ever met Kelly or BJ? Yeah, I've I, I met Kelly a few times actually, you know, and always got on along really well then we he surfed ours when you know in the few years that we had just started surfing it so that was pretty cool and i'd been over to hilo and train with with bj um you know and met him there so yeah but then you know both briefly but um yeah i was stoked that they they were they were you know willing to give their time up you know yeah so at this point you're balls deep in mma you're still big wave surfing what wild spots are you hitting and is there any consideration that an injury in the water could derail the MMA stuff or vice versa, that, that an injury in the cage could put you off big waves or? Yeah, um, yeah, it was like that, this, the whole sort of chasing these kind of slab waves like, you know, ship turns, ours, the ride in WA, 
was just like on fire around Australia at the moment. It's really unique that Australia is one of the only places in the world that provides these waves. You know, there's a few other spots, but to have the amount of these kind of waves, you know, like in Australia, it's pretty, it's pretty wild. So we were just, there's always something new, you know, like we'd surf one wave and all of a sudden we hear whispers of a, you know, bodybuilders have found this other wave off Victoria, you know, or off WA and we'd be on the hunt for that. And, and, um, and the magazines at the time but we were loving it, so there was plenty of exposure. So, you know, I was able to make a little bit of a you know, career out of just you know, chasing big waves. I had a few sponsors who were back me and you know, could fund my trips and all that kind of stuff. So I didn't have to work as much, laying carpet. You know, you're chasing these waves with Mark and you know, Kobe and Ev and Rooster and all, all your best mates. It was, um, yeah, it, it was just wild and it was awesome. It was, it was scary, you know, every time you got the new place, you know, you, You'd hear the waves breaking because you know you'd follow the swell there. You wouldn't just go sit there and wait. And hopefully the waves show up. You'd see these forecasts happening, and you'd go on uh, get there a day or two before the swell hit. And you know there was talk around you know down the pub over a few beers, what, what to expect the next day. Um, so I was so caught up in that, and then you know I was obviously always training in the meantime and taking as many fights as I could. The local scene and uh, mixed martial arts in Australia it was was uh, definitely in its infancy, you know, and, and I was fighting from, you know, bantamweight to featherweight or whatever weight class that I could sort of get, stay active in. And um, but there was never, never really a consideration of, oh, I should take it easy surfing this way in case, you know, in case... You were never built that fight. way. Yeah, it was just like, it just never, the idea of injury and stuff, uh, it never really entered my mind, you know. Like, I, was probably, I was still in that invincible stage of, of my youth where, um, you know, you just... You just keep going at 110 miles an hour, and you know, in, in any aspect of life, and it's all going to work out. Until, of course, you, you get a pretty nasty injury, and then, and then you start to reevaluate, reevaluate things. And, and that came in, you know, when I just played my elbow at training, um, and you know, I had to. You know, that was probably my first real injury when I was about 26, 27, um, where I was like, oh, okay, I can't surf, or I can't try to rehab this injury, and. and sort of start to reevaluate like injury assessment or risk assessment, you know, risk assessment has never really been a strong point, but at the same time, I started to get bigger fight opportunities too. I, I had fought for a, a world title in the CFC promotion against Gustavo, you know, I lost a five round, um, five round decision there, but the, the, the opportunities to fight bigger fights and then I started to have a bit more financial value to me as well. Started to get more serious, so I did start thinking, okay, well maybe like, Two or three weeks out, maybe I shouldn't go and surf hours, or shouldn't go to Shipstones, maybe like you know, two weeks out from the fight. You know, and then as the opportunities in the fight scene got bigger, you know, the more serious I'd take, and that just start to take priority. Whereas surfing was priority initially, and fighting was just like a little thing and see where that led to. Yeah. Um, you know, I fell more in love with fighting. Opportunities got bigger, and to the point where like I wouldn't go on surf trips because this guy, this fight coming up, and I can't risk getting injured. Because of opportunity to, to win this title or to be this opponent or you know, even to, you know, to earn that fight purse was there, so uh, that's where I started to, yeah, start that to, you know, assess the risk of you know, the activities. And, and it's funny, you only ever do that until you had an injury, and then once you acknowledge the injury, you sort of start getting more injuries as well. Yeah, like once you as it comes on your radar, and you go, Oh, maybe that, that's pretty dangerous there, maybe I should surf that way, you know, through each other fight. You go there, you, you get injured way more likely than you would if you just didn't have that attitude. Yeah, you know, I just, I've been on a run of injuries there for a while. Um, but yeah, it's what it is, yeah. It's just, I had to have it eventually, I guess. I'm going to throw some stuff out of left field. Um, 
you're talking about some opportunities in the fight scene starting getting started getting bigger and more lucrative um i'm guessing this is around the time of uh impact fc which was a great opportunity for a burgeoning australian mma scene at the time um but for a majority of people on the card was a massive clusterfuck um i'm good friends with thomas huggins who was one half of the promotion team right so that was my next question did you get paid (laughs) no no that was a big clusterfuck and now i was one of the fighters to get paid and and uh yeah i mean it was a great opportunity because you know you had like ken shamrock and pedro josh barnett josh barnett like some huge names on that card there to to have that event in sydney lucky enough to get a start on that card um you know i fought glenn taylor smith you know i was able to get the the win the second round Uh, and then you know I was naive at the time, you know, just like, yeah, yeah, I just thought, of course, you're going to get paid. And you know, I, I've been put on to Thomas Huggins and that whole promotion through uh, Jairinho Gamerez, who um, part of Tough Media and and um, Black House and all, you know, Ed Soros as partner. So I, I thought I was in pretty safe hands, really, you know what I mean? That um, you know, I was going to get paid and it was going to work out. But, Did yeah. you have a manager at the time? No, I didn't. I, so I said, like, you know, so he never kind you of had people through. pointing you in the yeah, right say, direction. Yeah, like, you know, we know Richie and Oz, you know what I mean? You're one of the young talent down there to fight on the card. He's, you know, he's Richie's details, basically, you know. I just come from Hawaii recently. I stayed at uh, Makua Rothman's house, who, you know, Eddie Rothman is really good mates with Shahinho, and that's how we got to know each other. And he's like, mate, if I ever hear any opportunities in Australia, I'll, you know, I'll throw your name in there, and that's how the, you know, I eventually got started Impact. Yeah. So I thought it was all pretty rosy, you know what I mean? I've been introduced to Impact through a mutual friend, and... He was well, Jahino was really well respected. So, uh, yeah, it was, you know, it was a decent person at the time, you know, especially being a young guy. Um, yeah, and with such big names, it was pretty, you know, I thought it was pretty reputable, you know. There's no way they're going to be able to have Ken Shamrock and Josh Barnett out there and not pay people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, as I said, four, got the win. I actually uh, was going to Bali like two days later or something. So, like, yeah, there's me Bali chip paid for, you know, like I'd already spent Cheering. money, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I left thinking, like, yeah, it will come through eventually. Uh, but when I want to shitty things, it happens in the fight game. Uh, you didn't get paid for that fight. A lot of guys didn't get paid. Now I heard, you know, people were chasing Huggins and a bunch of guys around to get the money. Now, I know Thomas so, is going to be listening to this. So I'm going to say what he told me, whether or not this is the truth. I guess there's only two people in the world that will ever know this. Thomas told me that he was responsible for booking the talent and Andrew McManus was responsible for paying the talent. That all of the costs associated with promoting the event, including marketing, talent, uh, venue, uh, production, etc., was the responsibility of Andrew McManus. Yes, not is. saying that's true or not, but that is what Thomas has told me, and I know he's going to be listening, and he'll be filthy if I don't say his side of the story. Yeah, yeah. well, that, that's all well and good, you know, but I didn't hear Andrew. Doesn't mean shit because you didn't get your money. After the fight, you know what I mean? Like, all oh, the only person I'd ever dealt with was Thomas. Yeah, you know? right. I got introduced to him by Jahinya. Uh, only person I dealt with in, ter- in regards to person, what I was willing to fight for, this and that, was only ever through Thomas. Yeah. So they had that fight. They hit him up. Hey, mate, how are we looking for that payment? Uh, oh yeah, oh yeah, talk to this guy. It's like, all right, but you know, I've already ever spoken to you, and now it's time to pay. And now you get a frame of like, so and um, yeah, if some guys did get paid, so maybe they got onto Andrew Manus early or whatever it was. I don't know, but well, I know I, for I a gonna, fact that Barnett and Shamrock didn't, and they're still filthy. Yeah, well, you know, and I, <laughs> I, I you, you can't get lost this name. Like I was like, all right, and it's a learning experience. Now. So I've prov- I've dealt with promoters very differently in the, in the you know since then, and, and never had that same uh, scenario happen, but. 
Like, if you listen to Andrew McManus, I made five grand in 2000 and wherever it was, 10. <laughs> I'd love to see that again now, if you're still out there. Or Thomas, if you can help us out. My daughter Grace um, loves some new nappies. There you go. Andrew Moranis. Where's the fucking money at, mate? <laughs> yeah, one of those shitty things, but fucking happens. Do you remember at the same time, um, we actually crossed paths around that time, around Impact FC. Um, around the same time that Impact FC was announced and promoted, a, a gentleman who was a surfer named John Shamuka was involved in putting together a promotion that was supposed to be backed by Boost Mobile. And from what I understand, you were one of the first fighters approached to be a part of that event. Yeah. Do you remember anything BWB? about that? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was an, that was an awesome event. They had a few events and uh, we were Shmoo and um, you know, it was a training partner at the time. And, and Boost Mobile jumped in there and they still help us out today, Boost Mobile. Um, shout out Boost Mobile. Yeah, shout out there, because they, they, they were like, you know, at a time where a lot of brands didn't want to associate themselves with mixed martial arts or mixed martial arts fighters. Here in Oz, like I said, it was still in its infancy. You know, a lot of brands saw it as a risk, and you know, like, like you said, it was still getting labeled as human cockfighting, all that kind of stuff. So um, I was stoked for brands like Boost to jump on board and support a, you know, a, a young athlete you know, in the sport. Shmoo came up, you know, because he was you know, a BJG practitioner and, uh, and knew a lot of people in the fight scene to put together the PWP and start up a new promotion. And uh, it's a couple of awesome events, you know, they, they put together and I was, I was fortunate enough to fight um, and win their Bantamweight title. You know, I fought Justin Wong from Hawaii, he was undefeated at the time, and then I, uh, I fought uh, Nick Honstein actually, he was uh, on fire here as well and uh, was able to win the, the Bantamweight title by beating Nick. So, um, they had a few more events after that, but like all things, events, they, they, it's a lot harder than a lot of people would imagine. I think to keep you know the events running, and um, unfortunately, yeah, um, you know, stop putting on events. But it was a it was an unreal time actually because they had an event at the Roundhouse here at Randwick, which is you know, obviously my back backyard, and I was the main event. So to be able to um, go there and get the win, the win with uh, all the in front of the boys, crowd, it was it was a pretty you know, special occasion for me. Yeah, and then again to back that up and fight Nick for the bantamweight title just after that event, like he got in the cage that night at Randwick and called me out and said he wants to fight me and, and uh, you know, really hot our, our fight uh, to take it down to Shark Park and, and fight him for the Bantamweight title and get the win down there and get in front of like you know a lot of, a lot of my mates, it was, it was something pretty, pretty special so I was still at the PWP uh, title, you know, the, the belt hanging over the wall and something like you know, it really brings a lot of fun memories so yeah. Yeah, it was an awesome time. Um, so how did you find out about uh, Tough? Did, did, you, did you have a manager by that point? Yeah, so. So Zahini and Ed, I eventually signed with their management group. Yeah, at the time they had like Anderson You're obviously not still with them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're not with them. <laughs> yeah, at the time they had Lachita and, um, and like uh, always, always big, you know, UFC names. And they uh, they hit us up and said, look, Tufts come down to Australia, do a series down there. They're going to do Australia versus the UK, you know. Hearing that they're gonna do lightweight and model weights, but um, mate, just get in there and, and have a go at it, you know. We know you're fighting a fan of mate, but um, mate, what do you lose? Get in there and, uh, and give it a go, so. At least get your mug on TV. Well, at least get in there and get on the UFC's radar. Yeah. It only just recently the UFC had brought in the weight classes from 70 kilos and below. Yeah. So up until then, fighting the UFC was like really like, not really a realistic goal because you you were more looking to get into WEC exactly yeah you know, they acquired WEC and then introduced those weight classes to uh to their roster so I was like well I want to get I want to fight in the UFC you know so 
Yeah, if I've got to go on a lightweight or whatever it may be, I, I want to get in there, just showcase what I have, and, and then whatever may happen, may happen. If I do get accepted as a lightweight, fantastic. If not, well, at least I hopefully I was on their radar and we can keep pushing for a contract down the, down the line. Uh, no, but as it all panned out, I did pretty good at the tryouts. Um, you know, I had a pretty, really healthy record at the time. I think I was like seven and one or something. I only lost Peter Gustavo, it was pretty well respected. Uh, went in the tryouts, yeah, eventually got accepted as a lightweight. And uh, you know, I was chuffed, I didn't have to cut weight or do anything in the house. I could just eat as much as I want. And I was probably like walking around like 68 kilos at the time. So uh, that led me into, you know, the tough house with a bunch of young Aussies, you know, and we were all, uh, yeah, pumped to be in there and take on the Brits and the Irish. And uh, yeah, it was, a, it was an awesome experience. You know? it, was, it was tough. Uh, you know, hard and hard for, for a lot of reasons I didn't imagine going into it. I, knew, I always thought it was going to be tough, but yeah, it was uh, just that living in that cocoon and that separation from, from the rest of the world. Legitimately cut off? Well, yeah, like no, like no TV, no phones, no radio, no reading material, no nothing. You know? right. So yeah, you, you literally, you know, if you got like a whisper from the bus driver who was driving to the gym, you know, these little tops of the buses, well, who won the footy that weekend? Yeah, that, was yeah. like, that was like huge news. You know, we're high five in the back of the bus. Like, yeah. The bunny's gone up. The bunny's gone up. But apart, they were told they could speak to us. You know, so for them to let us know the bunny's gone up was yeah. like a big deal. But it was literally like you could not, you did not know a thing what was going on in the world. And that, I guess that's for that pressure cooker situation to send guys a bit loopy and instigate oh, some totally fucking drama in the drama, house. You know? like we got there um, on the first day. The, the, the fridge was packed full of beer, you know, full of food, and. It was just like they want to create that drama you know, yeah. and send people loopy, you know. They don't want people sitting on the couch reading a book. They want Doesn't make friends entertaining TV. And tackling each other over the coffee table. Yeah. You know, so. And as you know, always what ended up happening, but it was, um, it was a great experience, you know. I've met a lot of good mates in that series. I was, I was fortunate to go with some really good mates and come out with um, you know, even more. You know, you've got Rob Whitaker who's fighting for you know, the middleweight world title. He's a, he's a champ at the moment, you know. That's where I got to meet Rob and, and he's been such a great example for Australian mixed martial arts since. And, it was good to put the, the sport in into households, uh, mainstream households, and um, yeah, be part of that. After the after tough, um, how long is it? Is it an immediate transition into? Did you get a contract at the end of it? No, nah, no. Nah, so I got to the semi-finals in tough, and uh, yeah, got beat in the semi-final, um, and yeah, after oh, everyone was talking. I know most of the finals get a contract. We all fight on the, on the finale show. You know what I mean? Or whatever it may be. So everyone had these ideas of what may happen. But yeah, basically, uh, they're all going off like prior tough seasons, you know. Uh, but it wasn't to be for us. We we uh, the, the four finalists fought it out, and I think um, I think one in each division they fought as well. So yeah, they're the the, the four lads who made it to the final in, in each weight class, and then maybe one in each other division they they fought. So I was you know. Came out of the whole experience, all right, let's get, let's get back to the grind, you know, let's just get back to the gym, work on what you're going to work on, stay active, take as many fights as you can. Um, you know, obviously, they, they, they knew that I wasn't a real lightweight, you know, I'd been fighting a band at the time, but, but through the whole tough experience, I met Dean Amazinger, who was uh, the nutritionist for the UK team. And we got chatting, he's like, mate, you make flyweight, you know, like, you're, you're a flyweight, you're not even a band weight. So I said, no, I don't cut weight really to make band weight, you know, I kind of put a sweatsuit on and do some ads and then I'm down a band weight. So he was like, well, mate, gave me the idea of going down a flyway. So then um, I spoke to the guys. So I was in regular communication with the UFC through my management. So tell them I can make flyway. You know, if they want flyway, I'll, I'll, I'll get down a flyway. 
So I left the whole tough experience. Uh, got a few good wins under my belt. You know, I stayed as active as, as active as I could to try and bolster my record. And uh, you know, eventually got the call up. So yep, they want you as a flyweight. So I was like, couldn't believe it. You know, I was over in Asia at the time talking to like one FC. You know, promotion over there. Um, again, because at the time it was hard to stay active here, just in Australia. You know, I couldn't get fights regularly. I couldn't stay active as active as I like. So with the Asia, CFC yeah. was pretty irregular. I don't think AFC had even started at that yeah, point. AFC just started. I fought on AFC and right. a couple of wins on AFC, but still, I think it was, it was just to get opponents and then like you know, opponents are, you know, injuries. You know, obviously play a part of that. So fights fall through and. Didn't and these aren't full time fighters either. They're, yeah, you know, it's still got just you know the local the local scene where. Uh, so I went abroad to try and stay active in the Asian Asian region where there's a lot of guys my weight. I mean, but they were all looking to sign you, you know, exclusively to their promotion. You can't go in and, you know, if you were to get signed to the UFC, they, they could, you know, react to that. Yeah. Uh, so I just got back from, from uh, you know, Asia and that's when uh, Jahinia called and said, mate, get, you know, you're just speaking to the UFC, they want you as a flyweight, you're fighting in six weeks. And I was like, you know, I couldn't believe it. Yeah, I was stoked and all right, better uh, start stripping these kilos. Rude Awakening, um, Scoggins Wrestling. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was, uh, like, Scoggins had such a unique uh, karate base, you know, and, I, and all the homework. And he'd been there. fucking starching dudes a couple of fights before you, right? Exactly. He'd just been, like, defending the takedown and kicking the head off. Yeah. And uh, it was a style that I hadn't really come across before, so uh, looking back, I, I, I made a mistake of focusing on his his, um, his karate talent, you know, and, and worked a lot around the movement because it was so different to what I'd seen um, you know and didn't really give enough attention to his wrestling you know, credentials as well which you know, I don't really know what what uh, if you're in for college or high school what their wrestling you know uh, acumen means yeah like that doesn't mean anything to me you know yeah. what I mean NCAA uh, means shit in Australia coach, yeah. Fab, yes, mate, this guy can wrestle too you know I'm like yeah right but yeah, every area I've seen he's, <laughs> he's, he's, he doesn't want to wrestle he just wants to kick heads yeah so I thought that's what it would be. I thought, you know what I mean? I'll, I might maybe try and take his, him down or I'll be chasing him around the, the octagon. Uh, Looking to lay hands. Box on it, like, you know, put the pressure on him and you know, get him on the back foot, get him on his heels so he couldn't like, let off those, those creative kicks and uh, put the yeah, really just try to dictate the pace. Uh, came out, yeah, and, and really stuck it to me to wrestle. And I was really just was caught off guard. And yeah, it was just uh, a really, yeah, uh, that was what I, like, it's not, Obviously, my only loss was a loss. I really look back at it with uh, there's a pretty sour taste in my mouth because, yeah, I'll, I'll not going to go into it. Obviously, I wasn't. I, I didn't agree with the call the ref paid and I felt fine. Well, I loved the guy in that second round, which is only like ten seconds away. Reevaluated what's going on, speaking my corner, going back and you know, and with a different game plan. Readjust. Scotland's did an amazing job. You know, sort of caught me off guard with his wrestling, took me down and put me in a bad position, which I should never have been in. So, um, you know, hats off to him, and you know, that, that was a, 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 a not. Not the debut I was hoping for, that's for sure. How'd you feel at flyweight? Um, look, I made five flyweight four times. I never missed weight at flyweight, but that was your first time, though. That right? was my first time, yeah. But it just um, did you feel strong? Did you feel depleted? Well, on, on the night, you know, with your drum and stuff, you get it kind of all gets clouded. You feel strong. You feel full of beans. You feel on top of the world. You know, walking in there. But um, look, looking back now, I've gone back up the band weight, but there's no way I, I was. At my full. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't. I didn't pack the punch. I, I didn't bring the power down the far away. Um, yeah, and I definitely in the preparations where I feel the most. You know, like normally when I was fighting at, at bantamweight. You know, the last ten days I, I started to feel a bit flat, and I started trying to cut a bit more weight. 
but I was feeling that way like six to eight weeks out. Right. Cutting down the fire. I just tried to measure my food and it was the focus was always on the weight, you know, and it wasn't on the performance of training, it wasn't I was, yeah, so I started feeling fat and I just looking back I realised that yeah, it was a great opportunity, I don't regret it and um but it's it took the joy out of the, the prep as well. Yeah. I really didn't feel enjoy preparing for fights because was my focus was the number on the scale yeah you know, most rather than you know how i was feeling how i was performing training you know, how the sparring session was going so um yeah to get to move back up the banner weight it just brought the joy back into you know the training fighting and now i'm full of beans and you know, the week leading up now to the week of the fight and then you know then i started to think about cutting a bit of weight yeah you know, rather than thinking about it you know eight weeks out so how important was it for you to um, to give Sang Chan a uh, a touch up after that uh, debut that you're saying was disappointing? Yeah, it's it's, it's hugely important. You know, you know, you know, you know cutthroat the, the UFC. Yeah, you know, two losses and you and you you're shown the door. And I was very aware of that, uh, especially the way you know, I got stopped in in Brisbane by Scoggins. You know, even though like uh, you know, thank there's a lot of attention around that stoppage how, how bad a stoppage it was but it doesn't change the fact that you know, it's a loss on your record yeah, yeah. to get another one um, yeah, that was pretty much my UFC career gone and I looked at I looked at Roldan and, uh, and I thought you know, it was definitely I could beat him um, so the focus in that fight was to get the win you know and, and hold on to by any means necessary yeah and that's that's funny because you know, like, I look at that fight I wasn't overly impressed by my performance but I got the win because I was thinking about more probably about not losing but after that fight I fought um, uh, Lewis Smolker and I was more happy with that performance even though I got caught in the third round with a head kick and yeah. stopped I was much more happy in that performance so I went out and fought the way I wanted to fight um, yeah but I fought to got caught with a kick I didn't see coming in the third and you know, that's now, arguably, you were winning the first two rounds of that fight. Yeah, um, it was really great. That and fight. then, yeah, just got caught at the, what halfway through the third, yeah. towards the end of the third. Yeah, no, it was actually, it was actually quite, quite the, the, the late in the third, quite, quite, quite close to the start of the third. Actually. Oh right. So yeah, it was. Um, mate, like I felt great. I went off. Okay, got the win in in, uh, in Auckland over over Roldan. Okay, so I cut off a win. I could go out there now and just really like enjoy this fight. You know, put it out there and it was in front of my hometown of Sydney and awesome crowd um had awesome prep and i thought I had a few opponents changed that for that fight and, and then you know, lewis stepped in kind of late notice and yeah i knew it was, it was a real dangerous opponent um but i just thought you know i've had an awesome prep you know try to put the focus back on how i'm feeling and yeah and you know, the first two rounds went, went great you now I, I felt great with my, with my hands and some good kick got some takedowns felt great on the ground just really felt that i you know i was comfortable everywhere and then uh again in the third i wanted to maintain that pressure on him and um, you know, just walked into a kick and, and you know, that, that was it so like I said I actually left that fight feeling happier than I did almost the, the win in New Zealand just because I fought the way I wanted to fight and, and I put on a performance uh, that I was a lot more proud proud for you know so but um, yeah Smoker was a bad motherfucker for a while there too I, I think after you after yeah, that, yeah he won yeah. four or five in a row yeah he did he headlined one in Dublin got the win over there and he was right up right up there you know, yeah he, he surged up the flyweight rankings for yeah. a while there um, so yeah like it, it kind of obviously it sucked but it kind of you know at least like not losing to a can like you know like yeah just take the positive out of get back to the gym keep training and you know and uh you weren't outclassed and you lost to a dude that's obviously fucking it was very fire, talented you know? so it was um yeah that's that's why MMA is so exciting you know never know what's going to happen I, I, any I given I, night yeah you know I thought I was um totally in control of that fight so I got clipped and um 
but yeah, it keeps you honest, keeps you going back to the gym and, and working on when you get to work. So you drop the fight to Smoker and then you drop one to Martinez. Yeah. Is it immediate release? Is there a waiting period? Is there a, we don't know what we've got for you or how? Do, what's that conversation? Yeah, it was weird. I was in pretty good um, contact with, with Sean Shelby who manages those, those lot of weight classes. And um, yeah, look, yeah, in Melbourne, it was such a big event. I, 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 was, I was confident I was going to win over Martinez, but gave away a few takedowns and you know, ended up losing the decision. Um, and it was, it was at that event, I spoke to Sean and said, look, um, yeah, pretty good over the loss, but you know, I really want to move back up to band weight. I think you know, I'm going to perform. That, that was where I started to sort of reevaluate the preparation and the weight cuts having me and um, uh, approaching to moving back up. So is that, and actually, my personal doctor too, as you said, is I'll get some bloods back from some, some, some kidney readings and stuff. So look, it's not the best thing for you, what, what you put your body through. So um, that's what I started discussion with that with Sean about moving back up to band and weight. And then um, he said, go leave with me, you know, we'll, we'll talk. And then a few weeks and months have passed and they actually, they cut a bunch of guys who fought in that Melbourne car. Uh, and I wasn't one of them, so I was like, oh, okay, you know. Maybe they 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 could see something in me like you know maybe I'll, I've scraped through you know with um, you know the skin of my teeth and I, and I avoided that you know the cut um, but it wasn't too much longer later that they said look we've got to you know, change the roster up a little bit and just given you know, the record that we've got to make room you know for some more flyways guys like, that's how we got you on the you know you were start we go to we're trying to build the flyway division and we want to get some new names on there so and I was like Sean I'm totally understanding we don't know the way the the, the machine works you know. Um, so yeah, it but was, wasn't closing the door on uh, on a return. No, well, it, 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 it was a very you know friendly conversation. It wasn't closing the door at all. He goes, look, we keep you on our, on our roster, on our books. Um, now go out there if you, you, know, you can. Obviously, if you get a few more wins, wins involved, that's fantastic. Um, regardless of what weight class, but at the moment, yeah, we're just trying to shuffle up the, the you know our roster and get some new blood in there and you know, go into new markets. Um, so we've got to make some room, you know, and you're just looking through guys, you know, for the records and my record life. It always wasn't the most impressive at the time. So, yeah, it was, um, it was a tough conversation, but, yeah, hats off to Sean. He, you know, like, I really appreciate him making the call and, and having a chat. Um, so, yeah, then I just went on a little bit of a, a little bit of a break just to get over some injuries and, and just uh, refocus on things. And, yeah, then, you know, I started getting back into it. So in the midst of being a UFC fighter before you're released, you're surfing Cape Fear. <laughs> yeah. Um, how dangerous is that in comparison to other breaks you've surfed, be it Tahiti or Hawaii? And um, where do you find underwear big enough to fit your fucking massive balls? Oh, mate, it's not the ball. It's just, um, <laughs> yeah, no, that was just a surreal event. You know, that Cape Fear, that swell. I mean, we've been surfing it for oh, yeah, 2001. Yeah, that's, that swell came in 2015, I think. So we'd been serving that place for a while and, and never seen anything like that. And um, yeah, it was just. Has it has it been like that since? Nah, not even close. Not even close. Now we saw like, the... I was like, this can't be real. Or like, or like what I was seeing on the forecast. Like this is not going to do what it says it's going to do. And to coincide with the Red Bull event, you know, that's too and, perfect. Uh, too perfect. And, and it was, you know, it was just. It was just a phenomenal event, you know, it was just one of those things where nature throws up, you know, a, um, a series of uh, forecasts that, that actually pan out and, and, and do what they say, I do the wind backed off, it was light, the swell was you know, from the east, northeast, and as big as it was, and it just, you know, it was perfect for, you know, Cape Fear and to have the event run. It was as safe as you ever on the surface, to be honest, you know, we had like water patrol in the, in the water, we had medi you know, medical staff in the cliff, so that gave, that's, 
yeah, as dangerous as it was, I was thinking, well, if it, what the cop wasn't, I would be out of surfing anyway. Yeah. Without, without all these uh, yeah, yeah. safety precautions in place. <laughs> so it was just, um, yeah, crazy wild event. So, uh, starting to be part of it, starting to be out there to, uh, to witness some of the, the boys surfing. Because again, like, talk about camaraderie and, and there was so many um, young local charges and underground charges that you know, people had hardly ever heard of to, to be able to get a start in that, that event. So it was, How important uh, was it for you to, um, to do that with Foxy and like your, your crew? Yeah, I mean, there's that, that a brainchild of, you know, of Marky Matthews, you know, one of my best mates. And Ron Hitwood had a, a big role to play in getting the whole Red Bull KP event up. And obviously Macca was like, was working a lot on the whole production side. You know, at, at a way, you know, it was my very close to my heart, my favourite big wave, world, uh, wave in the world, really. Um, so to have to have all that you know, bundled up into this event, and then to have Rooster and Evan Falks and all those guys competing it with you, Jesse Pollock, Jughead, you know, from the Central Coast, uh, all these guys, Kurt Finnoff, guys we you know we chased waves to Tasmania and WA you know together you know, for years. It's quite a tight knit sort of community, you know, the, the Australian big waves kind of surfing. Um, so to be able to be out there and compete against each other, but it was it was more or less like everyone just wanted everyone to just, just to be safe and get the best waves of their yeah, life. Yeah. And it wasn't really like oh I've got to get this 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 wave score to beat so and so, and I'm gonna try and get through the next heat. It's just like. Everyone's hooting and screaming and yeah. just like, you know. Experiencing this once in a lifetime swell. Well, it was. I mean, like I said, I've never seen a swell like that before. Um, I don't know if we ever will. Like, it was just a wild, wild like, aligning of, you know, of the stars to make that whole thing happen. Tell us about the book. How did it come about? Um, yeah, the book, I was, um, I was with an agency called Harry and Miller and uh, Hayley and Lauren, the girls who, who work at Harry and Miller, have a good relationship with the guys from Alan and Ludwin who are uh, our book publishing group. And Tom Gillett, who is part of Alan Ludwin, has a 17-year-old has a son who loves to surf and, and has been really up to date with all that we've been doing you know, with the crew and fighting fear and everything uh, of that. So, uh, yeah, the girls, they called me in some one day, so they've got um, you know, Tom here from the publishing group who's interested to talk to you about potentially you know, putting some the paper and doing a bit of a book and, and I was pretty chuffed you know with the offer and the thought of it but yeah again I wasn't really sure that that uh is it really stuff there that people want to read about people want to actually buy a book to read about this you know little you know, punch drunk carpet layer from Ruby you know what I mean so um I was I'm an hour and thinking oh you know look really really appreciate the offer um you know Tom was pretty keen on on, you know, on on getting it going, and I thought, well, if I could, you know, because the whole idea of writing a book to me is totally foreign. You know, like I did ESL as a kid. I'm, I'm not the greatest academic, so <laughs> I was like, all right, if we can get a mate of mine, Sean Doherty, who's a surf journalist, you know, he, he knows the boys. You know, he's wrote a bit with Kobe before. Um, I've done a lot of work with him. We know, we, we know each other well. I don't have to regurgitate my whole life story to him because he's, he's got a grasp on it already. If we get Sean on board and he can help write it with me, um, let's go ahead and do it. Yeah. So when they approached you, they wanted you to write it? Well, I don't know. They had, like I said, the whole concept of how a book is created is totally you know, <laughs> foreign to me. I was like, right. I'm not going to sit at home with my crayons and write it, you know, start <laughs> yeah, jotting yeah. down and somehow come up with a book. I need some guidance on this and... and um, you know, and you know, Sean was the first guy that came to mind, and we, you know, we got on really well. And he's, I really like what how he puts, you know, his books together and his, his way of writing. Uh, so thank God he was available. I said, yeah, we can do it. You know, so um, 
Yeah, basically we just sat down for a weekend um, and got down and had a few beers and, and just talked shit for a weekend, really. And, and he, and he um, you know, transferred like 18 hours of, of chat or eight hours of some, some crazy amount of hours of the chat and then started like going through it and like kind of giving up chapters and finding points that were more interesting than others and like saying, let's talk about more of this, tell me more about that. And start ended up like, you know, developing themes and things for chapters and, and we had a bit of fun with it. You know, the whole, I, from, from the outset, I was like, I just want to have fun with this you now. I'm gonna be like, like I have been with the crew of Fighting Fear, it's gonna be warts and all, I've got, you know, nothing to, nothing to sort of keep from anyone. But yeah, it's just a light-hearted read about, about you know, most of the gnarly shit was out by then anyway, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, by the time I come to write a book, I definitely settled down a lot and you know, I've taken fighting very seriously for the last sort of sort of five to eight years. And, and um, yeah, you know, it was just you know, an interesting read about you know, the lifestyle that I've been living and the sports that I, that I was passionate about and, and growing up down Broomer, basically. So, yeah, me and Sean sat down and um, it was cool because he, he picked out parts and stuff that I didn't really... Or, expect to be you know interesting he goes oh this is really cool let's talk about you know how your dad came to australia as a political refugee or you know the, the trip you did to the nudist colony in the states when you were a kid you know some of this weird stuff so we had a lot of fun with that it was, it was cool it was therapeutic too for myself to sit down and talk about things and to have really given much thought to in a long time and um yeah and i and and then once we did put it out there the feedback i've been getting you know being unreal so it was a project that was really fun to be a part of, and something I look back at and you know, be pretty, uh, pretty stoked with it, uh, to, to be able to put down a bit of my story down on paper and, and have it out there. So it was, it was a lot of fun. Do you know if any of the boys have read it? <laughs> or did they cop the audio version? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I think so. Look, we had the um, we had the book launch down in Maroubra, uh, at the North End Cafe down there, and all the boys came in. Yeah, it was great. And, they are, they were super supportive. You know, the, the book, because it was called Bravo, you know what I mean? I told the boys that this is what we're going to run with the title. Um, the publishing group wanted to run that title because it was catchy and you know, the title was known. And we were, um, you know, we were thinking of a, of a few other titles, but it probably wasn't going to be, you know, as acceptable, I guess, <laughs> as a title. So, yeah, yeah, all the boys knew about it. They were kind of support me and they had a good laugh. And, a lot of fathers of them in there too, you know, they're like, that, that, for me, when I read like an autobiography or a book, I love to see like vision the Photos in the of, middle. Of, you know, the time that, the, you know, the subject you're talking about, yeah, you know, yeah. when I was a kid or this surf trip, and they actually see vision, I would say, I made a point of having a lot of photos in there and, you know, really, if I read books, they're picture books myself, so, <laughs> <laughs> so we did that, um, yeah, so, but yeah, the boys were stoked and we now really, you know, supportive and proud of it, so yeah, it was, it was good to you know, see that they uh, enjoyed it as well. Around the time the book comes out, um, you're with Mark Matthews, who we've spoken about a lot, when he is uh, seriously injured on a photo shoot down at uh, a boat ramp that you told me the name of. Pile of boat ramp, yeah, just past Old Dalaran, just before Bateman's Bay. What do, you, um, what do you remember about that day? It was, and I've seen photos of it too recently where I just went, wow. We were all lying around Mark while he's on the sand, you know, wrapped in that our foil with the paramedics around him, and it was just a. Oh, we had just done a trip to South Australia. Me, Mark, Hippo, um, Mark, obviously being sponsored by Red Bull, and they were doing this project called uh, Chasing the Shot with this unbelievable young uh, photographer called Leroy Dillette from down down on the Way, where you know he pulls in to crazy barrels behind the surfer and gets the photo of the vision looking out of the barrel, you know, past the surfer and, and um, you know, we're hoping to get, you know, some of that and 
we went to South Australia to try and um, score uh, some pretty crazy slabs down there and, and get it done, but we got a little bit skunked with the forecast and didn't really get the you know the ways we were after. And we got back to Sydney and all of a sudden a little forecast down the south coast, popped up where Leroy was from. Um, you know, Russell Bjorki and all the boys out there, and Mark's really good mates who have been doing this kind of concept of surfing the way with a photographer behind them and getting amazing, you know, images and, and footage. So we got down there the day that you know, looked, looked the best and um, it was like six foot and the, the wave, it's not the, the craziest wave uh, I've seen Mark surf by any stretch of the imagination. Um, so Mark and Leroy jumped on the ski straight away. I was on another jet ski kind of sitting in the channel looking back at it and they got a few ways, like one or two ways and didn't really sort of, you know, the wave wasn't that great. Like it was probably a little bit smaller than we actually thought it was gonna be. Um, and then Mark and Leroy, I think it was their third wave, whipped into one, it was a little bit bigger, kind of hit the reef. Mark pulled up high and caught a little bit of rail and, and fell forward. And um, I just watched it, you know, you, you might get wiped out and like you always have yeah, a little giggle, but you know, the wipeouts I've seen Mark go down on uh, over the, you know, the past decade, uh, this was, was nothing. Didn't rank? In compared, yeah. So I had no concern over himself. He had just come off probably a 12 month rehab of a, a, a shoulder you know, reconstruction. He, he, he fell at jaws on like a 50 footer and blew his shoulder to pieces. Um, so he, that that was like the, the, the most wildest injury I've pretty much ever heard of in surfing, like, especially to some of the unknown. Um, he had just stopped back in the water, you know, off the back of that injury. So um, now I, I saw him fall a little, there's plenty of water on the reef. So I was like, it didn't look too shallow. He kind of fell like in, in an okay spot. I thought he might have spat at the back. So I, you know, I was in a I kind of like just, you know, Hit, hit the throw on the jet ski, got over the over the wave, and, and I had a little giggle. I said, "Oh, you know," like I was, I was laughing about it, and then I heard him yelling and screaming, and realised that you know, that he needed to get picked up you know, out of the impact zone because he, he hurt himself. And straight away, I thought he's done his shoulder again, you know, because it was very early days and getting back in the water. So we got him there and got him on the on the back of the sled on the jet ski. And he's like, he's screaming, "I broke my leg! I broke my leg!" And I'm thinking, "Oh, phew, you know, like it's not his shoulder. Thank God, you know, don't have to go through all that again." Uh, put him up on the sled and could see that like, there was a bit of a disfigurement around his knee and you know, kind of like his tibia and fibula what didn't look real you know, 100% but he had his steam right so he couldn't tell really there was no blood so I was like get him back on the sled or get him to the beach and, and deal with it still thinking like you know worst case scenario broken leg you know, you're bummer like, but not insurmountable oh, thank god you haven't done your shoulder again because yeah, yeah. his shoulder injury he'd been on the couch for 12 months you know, rehabbing it or whatever and just got back into surfing and yeah, he fell on a 50 foot wave of jaws and that's why so yeah he just, he just like no way and a, a little kind of reef break off the back of car boat ramp like at six foot that anything worse than that's going to happen you yeah know? anyway we get him ashore and, and um yeah you can see he's in a world of pain you know i mean he can't touch his leg he's he's we've dragged up the sand a little bit and you can see disfigurement around his knee and his you know the, the top half of his calf kind of area so we called the paramedics and uh, the paramedics did like they did a phenomenal job realizing that now he's got no no feeling in his foot and he's got no blood flow to his foot so they're thinking like something's interrupting that artery that main artery that, that feeds blood to you to the lower half of your leg and and something you know with the nerves as well so they didn't mark about you know they pumped him full of ketamine and morphine and before we knew it like mark who was in a world of pain you couldn't you know, have a grain of sand touch his foot was just like you know the, the paramedics were trying to like manipulate his foot to try and release the artery and like we yanked on his leg and he was just Talking to Joe Rogan on a podcast about <laughs> like psychedelic drugs and how good he's, how good a journey he's on. So uh, 
But the paramedics realise that no, there's no blood flow to the to the lower half of his leg. We've got to get him to a hospital ASAP. So they, they put him on a chopper and, and, and medevaced him straight over to um to Canberra Hospital, you know, for emergency surgery. And thank God they did because they basically saved his leg in by doing that because he severed his artery in his knee that you know fed blood to the, your foot and your calf. Uh, and when they opened him up, they realised that he'd obviously done a, a, a lot of nerve damage as well. So uh, it's been a pretty crazy ride since then, but you know, I saw a photo of him doing a big hack at, um, at D-Bar, it looked like, the other day, and he got shacked off his brain. So he's back in the water, he's you know, not quite surfing you know, the, the crazy ways that he's known for, but experienced senior mate in that scenario, and uh, unfortunately I've been there with Mark few times but injury that we originally didn't think to was too bad but definitely took on a lot ended up being the worst yeah he was you know the, his leg opened up he was in Canberra hospital for weeks and with a smile and positivity and kept cracking on with what he does at any point do any of these injuries make you stop and think uh, reconsider your style or think fuck chasing these big waves like the risk isn't worth it anymore or is it just like that's a bummer but it didn't happen to me fuck it let's keep doing it yeah, like, it's a, it's a funny one, because you always know the risk there, obviously, you know what I mean? You're sort of surfing these kind of ways, you always know what may happen. You see having a close mate, you, and you, know, you say you you, know, you, you, you put yourself in, in their shoes, and what, how would I react, and what, what would that mean to me and my family if I was to be in that situation, you know what I mean? So many more crazy wipeouts, and it was just pure bad luck. The way he fell, the way he got lifted back over by the way, and you know, slammed back down the reef. Even the way he landed on the reef, the way his body was, just, it could happen a million times over again and he would come out without a scratch. But you got to look at like Anderson Silva's leg break or... Exactly, you know, you just sort of... Uh, you How know, many times has he thrown that kick and been checked without that happening? Yeah, um, you do, you know, I've become, you know, I think, more calculated as I've gotten older. Um, now, that, that invincibility sort of concept has definitely brought back a few notches for sure, but I still think... Um, yeah, fear and, and, and the fear of what may happen and fear in general is not something that should dictate the way you approach life, you know. Mark's a, you know, such a great testament to that, you know, the way he talks about fear and, and I think that's it, don't let it get in the way, you know. That's always a, a, a potential come or whatever we're doing, you know. It's a risk to yourself, but don't let that dictate your, your decision making. As in you hesitate, well then the, the likelihood of injury and whatnot is come so much greater. Yeah. Um, Play, try to be smart about it, but don't don't let it rule you. Yeah, yeah, and, and um, anyway, you're in a fight and you're you're worried about getting hit. The aim of the game is to hit, and not be hit. But yeah. if you're so worried about getting hit, so you're no longer contracted to the UFC as a fighter, but you start working for Fox Sports on Fight Week. How did that come about? Well, um, yeah, I, I was. Over the moon when I was approached to work on Fight Week, we had built a really good relationship with the guys at Fox Sports, you know, through you know, Adam Howarth and, and Fuel TV. With our series, we had the crew. Um, that was off the back of Fighting Fear and, you know, myself, Mark. Continuation, like a mini-series kind of thing? Yeah, basically, we had so much um, excess footage through making Fighting Fear. The guys thought, you know, they could be a bit of a series here. Just just with the three different passions, and Macca and his music and his filmmaking, myself and mixed martial arts and surfing and obviously Mark and his big way surfing um, you know just putting those three together it would be interesting to, to put into a yeah you know a series and um, we built a really good relationship with the guys at Fox uh, you know mixed martial arts and the UFC was, it was getting bigger and bigger here in Australia it was gaining popularity and 
um, the idea of doing something similar to what they were doing in the States with our UFC Tonight and that panel kind of concept, talking all about UFC news and, and MMA in general. Um, they want to trial that here in Australia and they asked me to be a part of that as a co-host and I was like, I love to, I love talking about sport. I'm, I'm a fan of the sport as much as I am a, an athlete. Um, so to be able to go in there and talk about it and try to put, make it more mainstream in Australia too, you know, have the opportunity to try and showcase it and shake that, you know, that, that human cockfighting cock tag. And the that, negative you know, stigma. Because I'm passionate about it and I do love it. It is such a great uh, positive thing for young kids, you know, to learn any any aspect of martial arts, whether it be jiu-jitsu or karate or boxing. You know, if it's just in, in that form, fantastic. Is I've worked with kids at PCYCs and now, um, you know, back on track programs and the influence has had on, on kids who are either in trouble or just, you know, a little bit lacking in confidence has been phenomenal. So the, to change the concept of mixed martial arts in Australia, uh, it's a strength, I think, you know, we're in our fourth year now. So, yeah, I'm stoked to be a part of it. I had a lot of fun. I, I finally worked out what camera to look at and when. That was the biggest uh, challenge for me, is, you know, was sitting in that environment and chatting about it. Um, but, uh, yeah, loving it now with, with Elvis and Rob. So, yeah, it's good. You, uh, you mentioned briefly that you worked with the, uh, the back on track thing. How important is it for you to, uh, to give back to Maroubra and working with the kids that um, might be in tough situations or similar situations to what you were in growing up that could, um, could lead down a bad path? It's, it's just, uh, it's great. It's really rewarding, obviously, to, to, to work with kids who you see so much of yourself in them. You know, just like all young, young guys is, yeah, you use abundance of energy, and if you don't have a positive outlet, outlet to burn that in, uh, you, know, you find yourself getting in trouble straight away. So, um, you know, the influence of mixed martial arts in my life, it could have come at a bit of time, you know, where I, I was going out thinking I was invincible, could burn the bigger wicket both ends. Um, now, it wasn't until I introduced, yeah, to, was introduced to mixed martial arts and, and all the, you know, ideologies that come with it, you know, you know about respect and, you know, looking after yourself and being fit and healthy and treating others, you know, a lot, uh, the way you want to be treated. Just, um, now they're, they're great things to pass on to the younger generation, especially at that age where they're so easily influenced by others. You know, peer pressure is such a big thing. And I, I was I was such a victim of peer pressure. I just wanted to impress my mates no matter what, you know. I was getting pissed, jumping off this, you know, doing something stupid. But um, if you can just, yeah, put that into something positive, you know, and teach them and introduce them, you know, maybe an instructor at a gym and, just give them that hour and that week where they yeah, forget about it and they enjoy themselves. Uh, it, it's been you know, a lot of fun. And it was a concept that started with me and a mate of mine, Aaron Moore, down the beach. We, you know, the surf shop had a bit of a spare space out the back and we just hung some bags and made a little bit of a makeshift boxing ring and started uh, helping out another friend of ours who, who works with the youth services and um, you know, taking kids and putting them to the pads and doing some stuff at the end. And it led on to the... Um, CYC and, and Lewis's regist, Lewis Regis's gym up at SRG and it's still going today so it, it's great to see you know martial arts having such a you know, positive impact in some young kids lives and, and then parents their response has been fantastic too you know like I'm like oh you know let's just wait and like you know they're working in amongst a, a class now not just kids like other people are training you know what I mean who are and they're getting beat up by by women who are going off to do a secretarial job you know what I mean yeah, yeah. like so it really brings the, the kids down. down. I've shown a lot of young girls, guys, that especially they walk into a class with their chest puffed out, you know, I mean, thinking they're invincible. And, and then uh, you know, halfway through the session, they're, 
they're all gassed out and you know can't hold their arms jiu-jitsu is so, a very humbling sport you very quickly learn uh to leave the ego at the door when you're getting yeah. tapped by people 20 kilos lighter than exactly. you with exactly. far more experience and, and at the end of the session now we all bow to each other we all shake each other's hands and you know the pcyc then takes them back to the pcyc gives them breakfast you know, gives them a shower and takes them to tafe or school or wherever it needs to be you know wherever they need to be so i know that i would have loved to have been part of so at that age, you know, I think it would have been great. I feel like you undersold how prolific a nudie runner you became in your uh, in your years. Was that the party trick? Yeah, no, I was a sucker. Like, like I said, I come from both my parents were shy getting nude either. But we uh, we went to nudist college as a kid. Like yeah, so I was never too I was never too out of the ordinary. But yeah, I was a, I was a sucker for you know you won't do this. So I'm bullshit, right? And. Uh, yeah, for people that don't understand uh, you need to go out firstly and grab yourself a copy of Richie's book which is called Bra Boy um, you will quickly learn that uh, there is multiple instances recounted in the book where uh, Richie's got his kid off and run around the pool table or run through the streets of Maroubra uh, butt ass naked at the uh, laughter of and uh, encouragement of the boys um, yeah I I read recently that you spent some time at Alliance MMA with uh, Eric Del Fierro and a bit of time at uh, Team Alpha Male. Yeah. How was that? Well, that that was a really good opportunity with the guys from Fox Sports and Fight Week. We went over there to follow Rob Whitaker actually for his fight against uh, Natal when he fought in Vegas. Uh, Yeah, he beat him over three rounds. But off the back of that, we were from Vegas. We were uh, there 10 days with Rob uh, in the lead up to the fight. Yeah, after that, went to Rockhold's gym at AKA. I had a chat with Rockhold, I moved around with the boys at AKA, and Alpha Male with their Raya, um, uh, Cody Garbrand. Yeah, I was fortunate, fortunate enough to do a few rounds with Cody, and just think it's such a, a killer team over there. You know? Especially for the lighter weight classes. Guys, it was phenomenal to um, get around and move around with those fellas. And then we went down to San Diego and uh, with the Lions, you know, met Dominic Cruz, um, I think Jeremy Stevens was prepared for a fight at the time. And they're obviously doing a bunch of stuff with Fox Sports and Fight Week and getting in contact with them. But uh, as a fighter who fights in a lot of weight classes, to mix, move around with those guys, it was definitely um, great experience. Yeah, phenomenal. And it's something where, you know, like I said, I'd just been released from the UFC. I was just, uh, I was still training, but I wasn't sure where I wanted to go. And then to move around with guys and, and you know, gyms of that nature, I don't want to be someone like, you know, keep them going in there, you know, past. You know, what you should, but I love it. You know, I love the training. I can't train and not want to compete at the moment. You yeah. Know? So I think uh, that was definitely like a. Was Dillashaw know, at Alpha Male at the time, or that split had already happened? Bang, yeah. So that whole that whole beef had already so started. Buckholtz was head trainer. Right. Yes. Yeah. Awesome. Like so so. Um, Who's now hospital. left also? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He can't keep up with But but Cody was was training to fight. Thomas Almeida actually at the time. Right. I, I actually trained to fight Thomas Almeida, Almeida uh, here in Sydney. In, in a, it's quite like a hybrid martial arts fight called um, Combat 8. Right. Here in Sydney where when you're standing it's just boxing. You know. um, but the week of the fight Thomas couldn't get a visa. But uh, yeah, we were there to you know, chat to Cody and how his prep was going and he was looking phenomenal. And yeah, like I said, I was fortunate enough to get in to a few rounds, not just Cody, but a bunch of the team Alpha Male guys. And, just to see how it all works over there, you know. I think we get this vision of you know being in Australia. Well, we're definitely used to, maybe not so much these days, but 
Now, whatever they're doing in the States is so much different, so much better. And, you know, they're, they're, the only place to improve in the MMA is in the States. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, what they're doing is not a whole lot different than what we're doing here at all. It's just the numbers that are doing it. Yeah. You know, you've got 50 black belts in the gym and you've got 50 professional MMA fighters. We're over here, you just don't have the numbers. You know, you still got a majority of guys are still traveling to do the boxing here, your jiu-jitsu here, you know what I mean? You're wrestling here. Over there, it's all under one roof with yeah. 50 other guys. Um, so that was a really cool eye-opener. It was uh, a great opportunity, a lot of fun. And to do that with work, with the UFC Fight Week and, and uh, get some content with them, it was great. Oh, and all off the back of watching Rob, you know, beat up Natal. Was- Did you, you touched on briefly what uh, the explosion, I guess, recently of the Australian scene um, and that you noticed there wasn't a great deal of difference in what they're doing overseas and what they're doing here, which I guess is evidenced by the fact that um, Rob primarily trains out of Smeaton Grange, Gracie's. Um, Alex Volkanovsky trains out of a gym no one's ever heard of called Freestyle down with uh, Joe Lopez. Um, how is it for you who came up, I guess, in the, in the early days of the explosion of MMA to see where things are at now? Um, with like your Tai Tuivasas and your Tyson Pedros and your Robs and your Volkanovskis and those guys. Yeah, you and too, you know, integrated martial arts, integrated off a normal thing out there as well. As do the guys at Western Sydney with Ty and Tyson, Rob, you know, obviously. The blueprint, like you don't have to travel to, you know, to become a world champion, we're doing it all, you know, on home soil. But, yeah, I think everyone's cross-training a little bit now too. We're all like going to each other's gym. The boys in Melbourne, you know, Daniel Kelly. Um, Jake Matthews. Jake Matthews, like all those guys down there. Yeah, we're all, everyone's cross-training. Whereas when we first started, I think it was very much that kind of jiu-jitsu academy mentality. Like, you know, you don't go train in an academy. Yeah. You know, cross-training. Now, mixed martial arts, the opportunities have come great. Now we can fight aboard, you know. Before, we could, we've only ever fought on the local scene. So you don't want to go and train in another gym because you're, you're, you're probably going to fight one of his boys. Probably want to, yeah, you stick to your own gym majority of the time. There's opportunities to sharpen yourself. You know, and the level's not so much higher here. Um, the vibe, at like, you know, not only in Australia, but the New Zealand guys, you know, with uh, you know, Israel and uh, Daniel Hooker and all those guys, like Kai Carter France and... Now, even Brad Quake, who's fighting, you know, mostly in kickboxing, but they've got such a strong gym over there at um, City Boxing, I think. Yeah. And uh, got Alex and the boys from Wollongong got over there. So everyone in this region really like sort of feeding off each other at the moment, which is, which is fantastic. And um, I've always known the potential here in this part of the world is, you know, it, it's always sort of really untapped because their yeah, athleticism and their the love for sport and contact sport especially is uh, yeah that, that idea of you're only ever going to make it if you go into a camp in, you know, in America or whatnot. Um, in saying that as a fan of MMA as incredible as it is to see where the scene is at now it would be a poor form of me to not mention a few of the people that made it possible um in the early days i.e chris hazeman jaya tooth fairy bradney elvis um your co-host on fight week yeah, well, who's supposed to fight hazeman too yeah. um you know ufc sydney i think back in 2012 110 yeah. yeah um jaya good mate of mine too you know he, um, adrian pang dylan adrian andrews james tahuna he got robbed you know we want to see he's still He's still you know, up there at the elite. Just a level. fucking savage he's, he's of a such dude. A great example for guys like and an incredible like, human being as well. Yeah, and you can see that you know, what he's producing up there at his gym. Um, yeah, Isaac's a phenomenal young fighter, uh, as is you know, Betty Wynn and you know, Jai Brady's still getting in there too for last weekend. Uh, he, was, uh, yeah, he was on the 
yeah, on the, you know, the guys trying for the tough, you know, Australia versus the UK and uh, I think you should mate, I think it's a little bit of a visa thing too, stopping him from getting on, but uh, yeah, great shout out to those guys. Just so, quietly might be the coolest nickname in MMA as well, the Tooth Fairy. Yeah, big, big, big fan. Yeah. Um, yeah, but shout out to those guys that come up in the early CFC days. Um, I know those cards were... Trekker, wild trainer. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you get the CFC lightweight title for both Jai and Adrian. And usually, yeah. from what I remember, you had a couple of scraps with uh, integrated MMA very early on in your career with Mick Mortimer. Yeah, you know what? It was, it was like, you know, it was a very Tough little son of a bitch he was. The TP gym, that was you know, our MMA gym down here in Sydney, which is since, you know, Alex Pratt's and Banana Treco founded that gym, well, Bruno originally, but then the boys took it over. You know, we had an awesome MMA team, you know, with Manny Rodriguez, Rory O'Connell, Jake O'Connell, um, yeah, Jake, it was uh, it was fun and, and Integrate had such a strong team as well. So we often clashed with those boys, and I fought Nick Mortimer a couple of times. But now they fought Adrian Pang a couple of times. Yeah. Nick, uh, Alex fought uh, Matt Kane a few times. It was just you know, it was just a really good rivalry. Bit you know? of team warfare. Yeah, it was, but you know, but a lot of mutual respect. You know, yeah. it was Dan, Dan Huggins um, there as well. It was just yeah, it was a lot of a lot of good uh, shows that we were both a part of and had our boys fighting each other. Um, yeah, so good yeah. look back at yeah, and, and and still catch up with those guys and have a laugh and stuff. I think it's super important that people like. There's a lot of people now that only see the guys coming through, but it's important for people to know those guys that came in a little bit before their time and uh, really helped push push the envelope in terms of getting MMA recognised or seen or uh, accepted by a wider community. And yeah. uh, I mean, they're not the prettiest bunch of dudes, but fuck, they. Uh, they certainly carried the flag for us pretty well for yeah, quite a few years. You need to do all the sort of work with you. Know, you. You won't meet a more passionate person about mixed martial arts or you know jiu-jitsu or any form of, of martial arts. He was he. You know, I've seen some footage of him at uh, AADCC uh, grappling tournaments like back when it was. I don't know what they were filming off, but it was like <laughs> the grainiest old footage. Yeah, and you know, George Sonoroblos too. You know, he was our coach on the uh, the old fighter, but he did uh, a lot too. You know, for Aussie MMA and you know, Chris Haysman, like you said. Uh, it is not like for as young as sport it is in Australia it's, got, you know, it's developing quite a rich history and a lot of characters and a lot of people went abroad you know what I mean like Aussie fighters went abroad to, to fight people from countries who you know, had a lot I guess richer history in mixed martial arts and always fared, fared pretty well so lastly what's next are you uh, are you gunning for one FC is there is there more fights in your future is there big waves that are unconquered what what's what's what lies ahead still still um, a little little bit of everything you know uh, I'm still looking to get in there and fight I was, I was hoping mid year this year but uh, me and my wife and Grace have just moved out of a one bedroom unit we've upgraded it into a two bedroom unit so we've been doing a bit of renovations and everything's we are crazy at the moment in terms of trying to get a, a little bit of routine of training happening. But I, I was hoping to fight mid-year, looking a lot more like September or the second half of the year, but looking to get back in there and fighting again this year. Still always trying to chase waves whenever I can, you know. Um, Any hints as to where you might fight? Um, in Asia. Yeah, I've been talking about some promotions in China, actually. I fought in Japan over in, uh, in August last year. Uh, looking to fight back in that region sometime this year. Um, I was working a lot with Martin Newman actually for his last title fight uh, in the way in 1FC but 1FC I've, I've spoken in the past and they, you know, it's a pretty hefty contract they're trying to lock into and I'm just fighting for the love at the moment like I was really honoured to me and Martin have trained together for years and um, uh, just as sparring partners from different gyms and uh, 
to go and do some work with him for his last four fight, last fight about against uh, uh, Bibiano. Um, but again, I just like if I'm training, I, I want to compete. You now I can't just train and just not have that urge to compete. So still training. I've been um, you know, going out day to day training with those guys. Young Hayden Harvard is a good mate of mine, and he's um, he's looking to make his pro debut soon. So just um, enjoying training. I want to get back in the routine, you know, in the, in the coming weeks, and uh, look at fighting again yeah, before the year's out. Hopefully this winter we get we get a few good waves as well, and um, yeah, looking to chase some waves. It's a, it's a lot more of a juggling these days, being a dad and and uh, feeling like a bit more responsibility to uh, to be the provider and, and put food on the table. Whereas in the past, you know, I could always sort of live off the smell of an oily rag, and, and it didn't bother me. But now, um, yeah, gotta gotta think a little bit differently, not be so selfish. So I'm still learning how to um, you know adjust to that, you know, not be such a selfish little prick like I've always been. So. Um, yeah, that, that's the future. Still doing everything I've been doing. As always, uh, there's many more metres of carpet to be laid. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah Taking on as a freak pipe and mesh, mate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, now that's it, mate. Oh, like I said, it's, it's what makes me tick, so I'm going to keep doing them. Now that you have a child, like life, you get a lot of different enjoyment and stuff that you, you never imagine, you know. So just go and send a smile on you on your kid's face is pretty special so if people want to keep up to date with Richie Vass tell us your Instagram your Twitter your Facebook whatever it may be tell us who do you lay carpet for fucking <laughs> get all your plugs out now let's do it yeah no it's just uh, it's just Richie Vass at Instagram and think Richie Vass link at, at Facebook and that's yeah that's about all it mate and yeah really? now the plug yeah if, you, if you're looking for a, you know, a lot harder read about a bunch of different stuff yeah to get the book and Check out Fight Week on Fox Sports on Thursday nights. Yeah. What right time? Uh, I think it's on seven o'clock on Thursday nights. Yeah, but it, does, it doesn't repeat itself, so it'll be on a few times throughout Thursday night. But uh, yeah, always, you know, talking about UFC news, especially now with so many great Aussie fighters on the UFC roster, we're always you know, pushing one of their fights. We've got Taito Vasa and Tyson Pedro coming up. Rob defending his belt. Uh, Alex will be on there soon as well. So it's uh, it's always a good uh, little fix if you're after your UFC news. Richie motherfucking Vass, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks, man. Thanks for having us. It's been a ball.